Conversing the Classics is a non-profit podcast initiative which aims to bring academic research on the ancient world to the public domain. Each episode focuses on a particular period and or topic with an academic who is currently researching that area. The episodes are designed to be accessible to all, focusing on both broad and specific aspects of each topic. For more information and to listen to all currently available episodes of Conversing the Classics, check us out on YouTube at Classical Youth Society of Ireland. Thank you very much. And welcome back to the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 106, Frustrations and Poor Decisions, Part 2. As we have seen, in addition to the various Greek city-states allied to Athens or Sparta, the Peloponnesian War also involved the Aegean powers of the Odrysian Thracians and the Persian satrapies of Tissaphernes and Pharnabasis. On the last episode, following the Athenian expedition, we also looked at how the island of Sicily fared in the last decade of the 5th century BC. Ultimately, hostilities once again between Segesta and Selenus brought another outside power to the island, and this time, it would be the North African city of Carthage in 409 BC. The primary consequence of this for the Aegean theater is that it effectively removed Syracusan involvement outside of Sicily, a huge blow to the Spartans. Furthermore, with the addition of the Carthaginians and their allies, the Libyans, the Iberians, and the Campanians, the war essentially had transformed into a Mediterranean affair. We even discussed how Carthage and Athens may have entered into alliance or at least some sort of political friendship. So for those keeping track, on one side, we now have the Athenian Empire, the Kingdom of Odrysian Thrace, and the Carthaginian Empire. And on the other was the Peloponnesian League, the Boeotian League, the Persian satrapy of Pharnabasis, and the Sicilian Greeks. Athens, though, would not be able to send Carthage any assistance in Sicily because they were still struggling to stay afloat financially and to keep their empire intact following their previously failed Sicilian incursions. Where we left off the narrative of the Aegean two episodes ago, in the year following the Battle of Sisychus, in total, the Athenians had lost more than they had gained. But a more serious problem was their failure to exploit their great victory. Although Athens controlled most of the cities in the Hellespont and the Aegean Islands, except for Chios, the territories of Ionia and Caria were still mainly in the hands of Sparta and Persia. And it was particularly distressing that the vital Hellespontine cities of Abydos, Byzantium, and Halcedon were also controlled by Sparta. Because of the aforementioned financial limitations, it would take the Athenians two years to do something about this. Furthermore, at the beginning of the summer of 409 BC, when Thrasyllus finally let out the Athenian fleet, he did so to Ionia rather than to the Hellespont. That's because despite the fact that they had now lost the advantage created by their victory, they still did not face any immediate danger. On the other hand, Ionia offered them excellent opportunities, as no Spartan fleet protected it. 
Tissaphernes' satrapy was weakened by revolts at Miletus, Cnidos, and Antandros, and pro-democratic friends of Athens lurked in most Ionian cities, waiting to bring them over if the chance presented itself. So Thrasyllus aimed to recover lost subject cities, harass Tissaphernes' territory, and collect booty, as victories in Ionia would gain the Athenians some badly needed money before they would turn their attention northwards to the Hellespont. In June, Thrasyllus' fleet arrived at the Athenian naval headquarters on Samos. They then sailed to and landed at Pigella on the Ionian mainland, where they set about ravaging the land and attacking its wall. Some Milesians brought help to the Pigellians and then pursued after some scattered about, lightly armed Athenian troops. But the Peltasts and two regiments of Athenian hoplites, who came to their aid, killed most of the Milesians. They then captured about 200 enemy shields and set up a victory trophy. After achieving this small success, on the next day, the Athenians sailed into Notium. There, they made suitable preparations to next sail onto Colophon, which they were able to easily recover as the people came over to their side willingly, since it was the time of the year when the grain was at its highest. On the following night, from Colophon, they made a raid into Lydia, where they set fire to many villages and hauled off much money, slaves, and other plunder. A Persian man named Stages was in the area, and when he had seen the Athenians scattered from their camp in pursuit of individual plunder, he attacked them one by one. He managed to capture one alive and kill seven others before the Athenian cavalry arrived and he fled. Afterwards, Thrasyllus led the army back to the sea and sailed on to Ephesus. Tissaphernes, though, had perceived that Ephesus was Thrasyllus's ultimate objective, so he had already dispatched his cavalry there to gather a large army. They were able to recruit many Ephesians to their cause by announcing the need to defend the city's main goddess, Artemis. While Tissaphernes' cavalry was preparing for the defense of Ephesus, Thrasyllus and his forces had arrived in the city's vicinity and spent the next 16 days ravaging its territory. On the 16th day, after stationing his cavalry, marines, slingers, and the rest of his lightly armed troops around the marsh on the other side of the city, he loaded up his hoplites back onto their ships and waited for the next day. At dawn on the 17th day, he began his assault, but his hoplites were met with unexpected resistance at the city's harbor of Caressos by a large group of Ephesian defenders, Syracusans, Selenuntines, and other allies whom Tissaphernes had recruited. According to the first fragment of the Hellenica Oxyrhynchia, there were Spartans here that helped to defend Ephesus as well. Although neither Xenophon nor Diodorus mentioned the presence of Spartans, in any case, about 100 Athenians were killed and pursued down to the sea. Then, the defenders turned to assault those along the marsh. There, too, the Athenians were put to flight, and about 300 of them were killed. The Ephesians then set up two victory trophies, one at the marsh and another at Caressos. They gave the prizes of valor to the Syracusans and Selenuntians, who had shown themselves to be the bravest, both to the groups as a whole and to individuals. They also gave to anyone who wished it the right to reside tax-free in Ephesus and the additional right of citizenship to the Selenuntians since their city had been destroyed by Carthage. Thrasyllus had suffered such a humiliating defeat at Ephesus that it caused him immediately to give up on the Ionian campaign 
And so, after collecting the Athenian dead under truce, he first sailed back to Notion to bury them, and then north along the coast to Lesbos. When they anchored at Methymna, he saw the squadron of 25 Syracusan ships sailing by. Putting out to sea to meet them, he captured four with their crews intact and pursued the rest back to Ephesus. Thrasyllus sent all the prisoners back to Athens, except for Alcibiades, who was a cousin and fellow exile of the other, more notorious Alcibiades. He had him stoned to death, and the Syracusan prisoners were held in the quarries at Piraeus, a fitting revenge for the fate that had happened to the Athenian prisoners at Syracuse. But a few months later, they would manage to tunnel through the rock and escape by night, some to Desilea and others to Megara. Thrasyllus then sailed his forces to Sestos to join the rest of the army, and from there, Alcibiades led the combined fleet over to Lampsacus on the Asiatic side of the Hellespont. The Greek forces began to fortify it as it was a base well situated for raids against Pharnabasis and for an attack on the main Spartan base at Abydos. Unfortunately, Thrasyllus' failures in Ionia revealed his shortcomings as a general. On multiple occasions, he wasted time by ravaging the countryside and allowing the enemy to prepare for his attack. Had he immediately moved against Ephesus, they might have taken it as easily as they recaptured Colophon. In the battle for the city, he also employed faulty tactics by dividing his forces and with dire results. Still, although the first major campaign of the restored democratic regime was a failure, most of Thrasyllus' force was intact, and so the Athenians still had the opportunity to achieve better results under more experienced and skilled leaders. However, while at Lampsacus, the veteran soldiers refused to be marshaled together with the newer ones under the command of Thrasyllus, on the grounds that they were undefeated and the newer soldiers had just been defeated and disgraced. This remained the situation over the winter of 409-408 BC. At the same time, the Athenian generals also undertook various missions into the Anatolian mainland to plunder Persian territory. At one point, when Thrasyllus led an expedition against the city-state of Abydos, Pharnabasis came to its rescue with his infantry and cavalry. But while the satrap had engaged Thrasyllus' forces, Alcibiades and Menandros were already en route over land with another force of cavalry and 120 hoplites. Together, they attacked the Persians from two sides and routed them, with only the fall of darkness preventing the Athenian cavalry from mowing down their fleeing enemy. On the following day, the Athenians set up a victory trophy, and then continued to raid even more territory of Pharnabasis, as he didn't venture out to defend it this time. Plutarch says that at one point, Alcibiades even captured some priests and priestesses, but let them go without ransom. Despite this, the satrap's quick response had saved Abydos, which still remained in Spartan hands, so the victory achieved nothing strategically for the Athenians. However, the triumph was important because it healed the rift in the Athenian army. On account of their efforts in this battle, the soldiers on their own volition finally came together and welcomed the men under Thrasyllus. The two factions were blended and returned to their camp and began to share in training and quarters. Moving back to Athens and to the realm of theater, Euripides' final competition in Athens was at the city Dionysia in the spring of 408 BC. 
By this point, he had turned away from his escapist theme on his plays to something a bit more melodramatic. One of the plays that he may have produced for that year is the Phoenici, or Phoenician Women. The play takes its name from the chorus of women from Phoenicia, who became trapped in Thebes by the war on their way to Delphi. The subject is the same as Aeschylus' Seven Against Thebes, with a few significant changes that are typical of Euripides' plays. It focuses on the personal ambition and absolute power of Ateocles, and may have been inspired by the selfish lust for power of men in Athens. Mostly, though, it was a direct commentary on the consequences of war, and in particular, civil war. Another play that has survived, which can be more securely dated to that city Dionysia, is Orestes, whose subject is the fate of the titled character after killing his mother, Clytemnestra. In this play, Euripides challenges the role of the gods, and perhaps more appropriately, man's interpretation of divine will. Although Orestes and the other characters note the subordinate role of man to the gods, the superiority of the gods does not make them particularly fair or rational. Even Apollo, the god synonymous with law and order, ultimately gives an unsatisfactory argument. For example, he cites the reason for the Trojan War as the method that the gods chose to cleanse the earth of surplus population. This leads one to question why gods, or political leaders, would use war as an instrument for a greater good. And this being the case, why these type of gods or leaders are worthy of our admiration and praise. Some scholars have lauded the play as a sharp condemnation of Athenian society, and some in particular have tried to see the demagogue Cleophone and others behind the character of Orestes. Though it's likely that the character itself is better seen as an archetype rather than any identifiable personality. Whatever the case, the play undoubtedly presents a pessimistic view of Athenian public processes and private agendas. In addition to the will of the gods, the role of natural law and its tension with man-made law is noted. For example, Tyndarius argues to Menelaus that the law is fundamental to a man's life, to which Menelaus counters that blind obedience to anything, such as the law, is an attribute of a slave. Perhaps most important to the play, though, is Apollo's closing statements that peace is to be revered more than all other values. We discussed these plays in much more detail in episode 53. These would be Euripides' last play, or plays, performed in Athens while he was alive. But we will get to that part of the story in a little bit. At the beginning of the spring of 408 BC, the recently unified Athenian force at Lampsacus set out to drive the enemy from the Bosporus and thus regain their freedom of movement into and from the Black Sea. And so they sailed to the Proconesus with their whole fleet of perhaps 190 ships. Setting out from there, they camped at Chrysopolis, which sat near Halcedon on the Asiatic side of the Bosporus, and began to devastate Halcedonian territory. The Halcedonians had perceived that the Athenians were preparing to attack them, so preemptively, they chose to deposit all of their movable property, including their goods and slaves, with the Bithynian Thracians, their eastern neighbors on the southern Black Sea and northern Anatolian coastline. When Alcibiades got word of this at Chrysopolis, he ordered the ships to sail through the Bosporus and around to the Bithynians, while he himself led the cavalry and a few hoplites over land. When the two forces rendezvoused somewhere on the coast, they marched on the Bithynians and demanded them to hand over the Hawkedonians' movable property 
or to suffer an attack. For the Bithynians, this was an easy decision and they handed it over immediately. Alcibiades went back to the camp at Chrysopolis, a hero with much booty. Then, the Athenians began to make plans to besiege the walled city. Clearchus, the Spartan Proxenos at Byzantium, had improved Hasidon's defenses nearly two years earlier, and their garrison was currently under the command of a man named Hippocrates. So the siege would require an entire force. The Athenians first built a wooden wall that enclosed Hasidon within a triangle of land, from the Bosporus to the Sea of Marmara, with the Athenian army and the wooden palisade between them and the Persians. With its completion, since the Athenian fleet had control of the sea, Hasidon's encirclement would be complete. When Hippocrates and the Spartan army came out to resist them, Thrasyllus marched against them with his hoplites. But the wall kept Pharnabasus' forces from joining the fight. After the battle had gone on for some time, the tide was turned when Alcibiades led his cavalry and a small body of hoplites into the battle. This finally broke Spartan resistance, and Hippocrates was killed in the fleeing onslaught. But most of his army managed to escape back into Halcedon and to close its gates before the Athenians could get in it appeared that they were going to have to settle in for another long siege. So Alcibiades departed in search of more money on the shores of the Hellespont, while leaving Theramenes and Thrasyllus to oversee the operation. At the same time, Pharnabasus led his army back to their camp at the Heracleion, or Shrine of Heracles, which presumably was near the city of Halcedon. Although Halcedon was shut in by both land and sea, Pharnabasus' troops were only a short distance away, and it's likely that they would have eventually found a way through the barrier and challenged the Athenians in the rear. This may account for why the Athenian generals, Theramenes and Thrasyllus, decided to negotiate for a ceasefire with Pharnabasus. Despite their superior position, oaths were sworn and the agreed-upon terms were that the Halcedonians would pay their former level of tribute to Athens along with all of the back pay that had accumulated, and Pharnabasus would pay 20 talents. Though we cannot be sure if Xenophon here refers to the Attic or Agenetan standard, Pharnabasus also had to personally escort Athenian ambassadors to the Persian king Darius at Susa. The Athenians in return swore not to attack the Halcedonians or the territory of Pharnabasus until the ambassadors returned. This strange compromise immediately provided the Athenians with badly needed cash, income for the future, and saved them from spending on a costly siege. It also saved Pharnabasus from completely losing Halcedon. The Athenians wished to talk to the great king himself in hopes of splitting him off from the Spartans. They believed that repeated defeats and the loss of great numbers of ships with no positive result might finally persuade him of the costliness and futility of his current policy of alliance with Sparta and hostilities towards Athens. In addition, Sparta's unilateral offer of peace, which the Athenians rejected, violated their own treaty with the Persians. The trouble with this strategy, though, is that the particular goals of each side still remained in direct conflict. Both wanted control of the cities of Asia Minor and the revenue that they provided. So it is difficult to envision what an acceptable agreement might have been. Regardless, the Athenians thought it was an effort worth pursuing, but it would be a few months until the satrap would be able to escort them from the Hellespont to Susa. 
In the meantime, Alcibiades was not present at the negotiations with Pharnabasis, as he was off gathering funds and Thracian troops in the Chersonese, including 300 cavalry and an unspecified number of infantry. And with these, he moved against Celembria on the northern shore of the Propontis. He was able to avoid a siege by plotting with a pro-Athenian party in the city. They had agreed to open its gates to him at midnight one evening with the signal of a lighted torch. But Plutarch records that they were forced to give the signal early through fear that one of the conspirators who suddenly changed his mind would tell on them. So the torch was displayed before Alcibiades' army was ready. In response, he led 30 hand-picked men to the walls in an advanced guard, while ordering the rest to follow him when ready. Whenever Alcibiades and his 30 men arrived before Celembria, its gate was thrown open and they rushed into the city. But the conspirators had guessed right, because Alcibiades' men saw at once that a group of Celembrians were advancing in battle array to attack them. However, just as they were about to be attacked, the rest of their army followed in behind them, and the Celembrian citizens immediately surrendered. Fearing that his Thracian troops would plunder the city, Alcibiades ordered them to stand down and sent them back through the gate. He then offered reasonable peace terms, promising that no harm should come to their city or their citizens if they should agree to the placement of a garrison there and to the handing over of some money. This type of diplomacy saved time, money, resources, and lives, and is what Alcibiades exceeded at best. From Celembria, Alcibiades then moved quickly eastwards to Byzantium, where he was joined by Theramenes and Thrasyllus. There, they quickly discovered that the walled city would not be an easy task as well, so they repeated their strategy of besieging the city on its landward side while the fleet blockaded it from the sea. As we mentioned earlier, Byzantium was currently commanded by the Spartan Proxenos, Clearchus. At his disposal was a corps of Perioikoi, a few Neodomides, contingents from Megara and Boeotia, and a body of mercenaries. When the Athenian assault on the city proved unsuccessful, Clearchus entrusted its defense to two of his subordinates, the Megarian commander Helixus and Boeotian commander Coratatus, while he went personally to Pharnabasis near Halcedon, in order to collect funds to pay his troops and to build additional ships. He also wanted to gather all the ships that were left in the Hellespont, and together with the new ones, to assemble a fleet to attack Athenian allies in the region, in order to draw their navy away from Byzantium. But while he was away, conditions in Byzantium would prove to be much worse than he had realized. The besieged Byzantines were growing hungrier by the day, as Clearchus had ordered most of the city's food to be given over to his soldiers, and since he was a typically harsh and arrogant Spartan governor, he had managed to anger enough influential people that with him out of the city, they were willing to join in a pro-Athenian conspiracy with Alcibiades. By promising them the same treatment that the Celembrians had received, a group of five Byzantine men agreed to open the Thracian-facing gates of the city on an agreed-upon evening. And so, after spreading a false story that the Athenians were leaving for Ionia, one afternoon in broad daylight, Alcibiades led his entire army and fleet away from the city. But when night fell, they stealthily made their way back to Byzantium. When the fleet sailed into the harbor to attack the Peloponnesian ships moored there, 
They shattered some of the boats with their rams and tried to haul off the others with their grappling hooks, and they did so with much shouting and pandemonium. The defenders on the walls were terrified of the unexpectedness and loudness of this attack, and so they abandoned their posts to help the Peloponnesians, Boeotians, and Megarians in the garrison fighting in the harbor. Although they managed to rout the ship's marines and drive them back on board again, since most of the city's walls were now unprotected, this gave the Byzantine plotters the opportunity to admit Alcibiades and his forces into the city unimpeded. They threw ladders over the walls and his army came up from their hiding spot and scaled over them. When Helixus and Coratatis realized that the rest of the Athenian army was now in the city, they went out with full force to fight them in the Agora. Plutarch mentions that a fierce battle followed. Alcibiades led the Athenian right wing with Theramenes on the left. Very little detail is given, but the Athenians won a definitive victory and took as prisoners 300 from the garrison forces. The rest must have either fled or were killed. As for the Byzantines, Alcibiades promised them safety if they surrendered. They did, and the Athenians back home honored his promise by restoring Byzantium as a tribute ally and not harming its city or citizens. The Athenians also placed a garrison there, which basically took the place of the one with the Peloponnesians, Boeotians, and Megarians. The prisoners were then sent off to Athens, though Coratatus himself managed to escape in the crowd when they disembarked at the Piraeus, and then got himself safely to the Spartan fort at Decalia. We can see that with Halcydon, Celembria, and Byzantium, the Athenians were now implementing a new policy of justness and conciliation to recover their empire. Meanwhile, Pharnabazus had not yet escorted the Athenian ambassadors to Susa in order to visit the great king, as he wished for Alcibiades to swear the oaths to. But when Alcibiades returned to Chrysopolis, he refused, unless Pharnabazus also would swear the oaths as well. This was agreed upon, and so at Chrysopolis, in the presence of Persian representatives, Alcibiades took the oath, while Pharnabazus swore in at Halcydon before Athenian representatives. Both swore to the stipulations mentioned earlier, but also made agreements with each other in private, though Xenophon doesn't specify what those are. With this in hand, at the end of the summer of 408 BC, Pharnabazus finally departed from Halcydon and ordered the Greek ambassadors to meet him at Cyzicus. Included were five men from Athens and two from Argos. From there, they began to travel to the great king at Susa, but they made their way inland very slowly so that by the onset of winter 408-407 BC, they had only reached as far as Gordium in Phrygia, where they stayed until the following spring. But news traveled fast in the ancient world, and it's likely on account of both Athens and Sparta's recent courtship of Persia that there arose some protest at the great Pan-Hellenic gathering in the Olympic Games in the late summer of 408 BC. More specifically, Probably because some of the Sicilian Greeks had also began to contemplate in joining the mainland Greeks in any alliance with the Persians, the sophist Gorgias of Leontini, who we discussed in detail in episode 87, and who now resided in Athens, spoke out against this to the throngs of people at Olympia, arguing instead that the Greeks should once again settle their differences and once again go to war with Persia. This is an interesting anecdote because it's a reminder that like modern politics, a city-state's foreign policy wasn't always universally accepted by its people, and that there were different factions who wanted different things. 
at the same time that the Athenians were achieving success in the Hellespont and Propontis, and probably receiving some backlash for their recent buddying up to Persia, they also suffered a big setback in the Aegean. If you remember from episode 104, after the Battle of Cyzicus, a Spartiate named Pasidippus had taken over as Navarch and assembled a new fleet by collecting ships from Sparta's Aegean allies. He also appears to have been at Thassos when that island revolted from Sparta and was banished on the accusation of having joined with Tissaphernes in effecting its revolution. Well, for 408 BC, Sparta sent out another Spartiate named Cratisippus to replace him as Navarch. He sailed off with 25 additional ships, which were also manned by their allies. He spent some time near Ionia without accomplishing anything, but a little later he received requests from some Chian exiles who sought Spartan assistance in being restored to their home. So Cratisippus agreed to help them. Peloponnesian forces seized the Chian Acropolis and returned a total of 600 pro-Spartan oligarchic exiles to Chios. These men then seized a place called Atarnius on the opposite Ionian mainland, and from that rugged base, they continued to make war on their pro-Athenian democratic opponents who held Chios. Eventually, the pro-Spartan oligarchs gained control, and so they were able to return Chios back to the Spartan alliance. Still, by the end of 408 BC, the Spartans were militarily in a weak position, while the Athenians were in a strong one. Athens now controlled almost the entire Bosporus-Hellespont region, except for Abydos, which was Sparta's sole remaining possession in the northeast. By now, their Sicilian allies had withdrawn from the Aegean to face Hannibal in the Carthaginian attack on Sicily. Pharnabasis, who had been their most consistent supporter, was negotiating with the Athenians after his defeat at Halcedon and was even accompanying them on an embassy to Darius. And even Tissaphernes might have been supporting the Athenians, as he is mentioned in a decree honoring Evagoras, the king of Salamis on Cyprus and Andocides for arranging a convoy of grain ships from Cyprus to Athens. In this decree, the Athenians appear to regard the Persians as an ally, but it can't be dated, so we don't know exactly at what point from 411 to 407 BC that it is referring. According to a fragment of Androtion, there was even another attempt by the Spartans to make peace with the Athenians, which again involved Endius, but it resulted only in a return of prisoners and nothing more. However, at this very moment, Sparta's fortunes were about to change dramatically, likely in the wake of their failed peace negotiation with the Athenians, and with the knowledge that the Athenians were about to send envoys to the Persian king, they too decided to make a new approach to Persia. And so, after Pharnabasis and the Athenian Argive embassy resumed their journey towards Susa in the spring of 407 BC, they soon encountered Spartan envoys, likely led by Boethius, returning from a successful meeting with Darius. Included in this embassy was Hermocrates, the Syracusan general who was now in exile. This would be a turning point in Spartan-Persian relations. The Spartans announced they had obtained everything that they wished from him and proved it by presenting a letter bearing the royal Persian seal. It would seem that Darius had finally decided to throw his weight fully and determinately behind the Spartans to bring the war to an end. It has been argued by scholars that what the king granted here was essentially the so-called Treaty of Boetios, 
whose terms Xenophon makes reference to later in his work. This treaty regulated the problem of pay to the Spartan ships, stating that there would be 30 minae per month for each ship, for as many ships as the Spartans should choose to maintain. 30 minae amount to 3,000 drachmae, or three obols per sailor. It would seem from later negotiations that this treaty also clarified the status of the Greeks of Asia Minor by stipulating that they should be allowed to remain in some way autonomous, likely meaning that there would be no Persian garrison installed in their cities, provided that they pay the same levels of tribute to the Persian king that they had agreed upon to give Athens in the peace of Nicias. The Spartans probably also agreed to remove their armed forces from Asia Minor at the end of the war. In addition, Darius had sent along his younger son, Cyrus, who was the second son by his wife, Perisatis, with orders to replace Tissaphernes as satrap of Lydia, Greater Phrygia, and Cappadocia. Essentially, Tissaphernes was being demoted, and the only territory left under his control was the lesser province of Caria. Cyrus also was to be the Keranos, or commander, of all Persian forces in the West, and had been given clear instructions from his father to fight alongside the Spartans as vigorously as possible in their war against Athens. This was a remarkable decision, as Cyrus was only 16 years old and much more experienced men, including his elder brother, Arsaces, were available for this position. This must have been achieved under the influence of Perisatis, who preferred Cyrus over Arsaces and who aimed to install him as heir to the Persian throne. In addition, under orders from Cyrus, Pharnabasis was to detain the envoys so that the Athenians at home would not know what was taking place. These men ultimately would be released three years later, but only after the war had concluded. Other scholars have argued that Xenophon got it wrong here, and that it was in fact three months, not years, before they were released. Whatever the case, this development put an end to any Athenian hopes or a diplomatic agreement with Persia, and it would ultimately be the decisive turning point in the war. However, the news of the Treaty of Boetios wouldn't reach Athens until much later. And so, as it stood at the beginning of 407 BC, the Athenian generals were riding high on their prospects for victory. They had just resubjugated Byzantium and Halcydon, and had finally freed the entrance into the Black Sea of, of enemy ports. The only Peloponnesian port left in the Hellespont now was Abydos, and combined with the aforementioned positional weakness of the Spartans, the Athenian generals felt that they had secured matters enough so that they could sail home, instead of vigorously prosecuting the war at Ionia at that moment. Therefore, they left behind a squadron of ships under Diodorus and Mantithaeus to guard the straits, while the rest of their fleet sailed southwest out of the Hellespont. On the way, Thrasyllus sailed ahead to Athens with most of the fleet, while Thrasybulus and Alcibiades took the opportunity to recover more of their lost territories in the Aegean Basin. In particular, Thrasybulus stayed in the north while Alcibiades headed back to Samos before going south. First, Thrasybulus, with 30 ships, sailed to the island of Thassos. His forces defeated in battle the troops who came out from the city and slew about 200 of them. Then, he bottled them up in a siege, and after they surrendered, he forced them to receive back their pro-Athenian, democratic exiles to accept an Athenian garrison 
and to be tribute-paying allies once again. Then he sailed to Abdera on the Thracian coast. Abdera was among the most powerful city-states in Greece, but he managed to bring them over to the Athenian side. Meanwhile, from Samos, Alcibiades, with 20 ships, sailed to the Karameos Gulf in Caria, where he collected 100 talents before returning back to Samos. According to Plutarch, he then loaded the holds of his 20 triremes with over 200 figureheads from captured Spartan warships, and he hung Spartan shields and other trophies from the railings. A purple sail billowed on his flagship's mast, so that there would be no mistake that this was his ship as he was notorious for wearing the color purple. Pipes were played for his crew, and a singer chanted the rowing cadence. Alcibiades and his officers decked themselves with garlands of leaves and flowers. With this pomp, he then sailed off to Paros, and then to Githion, the main Spartan harbor in southern Laconia, where he saw the Spartans building and outfitting 30 triremes, but took no action against them. Instead, he brazenly flaunted his captured trophies to the Spartans on shore. Essentially, he was reminding them that he was still alive. Xenophon says that he made these delays and excursions rather than an immediate reappearance at Athens because he wanted to test out how the city felt about him first. That's because even though the 5,000 agreed to remove his exile and Alcibiades had every appearance of being a great general who had revived Athenian fortunes, his position was not entirely secure. His was an extraordinary circumstance as he was a man with so many friends that he was repeatedly elected to the board of generals, but with so many enemies that he feared to set foot on Attic soil. His enemies were of various political opinions, too. Democrats who presented his slurs on their popular government and weary of his ambition. Religious conservatives who had not forgotten his treason. And other ambitious politicians who feared his rivalry. So he specifically awaited for the outcome of the elections to the generalship in the summer of 407 BC. The results could only have been heartening to him. Because not only was he selected as one of the ten strategoi, but the other nine chosen were among his strongest supporters, including Thrasybulus and Conan, and none of his enemies. Furthermore, it was significant because it was the first time that he had been elected by the ecclesia at Athens, rather than by the men in the fleet back on Samos. Nevertheless, he remained cautious, because legally he still stood condemned, and Xenophon says that even after he dropped anchor at Piraeus, he lingered on board his ship until his family, friends, and bodyguards appeared to accompany him up to the city in case of any attacks that might have come. But much to his surprise, no defense was needed, as a great number of people had gathered alongside the ships to welcome him back. In fact, the other generals were essentially ignored as everyone's focus and adoration was on Alcibiades. Someone even crowned him with wreaths in honor of his victories, as if he was an athletic victor. Xenophon says that they had come to believe that he had been exiled unjustly, that he had been slandered by those who were less able than himself, or that once his enemies gained power, they had almost ran Athens into ruin. Plutarch also adds that the mass of people generally didn't blame him for the ills that had happened, but to the contrary, as they believed that had he been left in charge in Sicily, they would have won there. But as it was, he still was able to raise Athens from a desperate condition, and he was now seen as a sort of savior figure. But despite this warm reception, Alcibiades immediately went before the boule, 
and then the Ecclesia to present a formal defense against his old charges. He declared himself innocent of the sacrilege for which he had been accused and complained of the misfortunes that were thrusted upon him. Tactfully, though, he blamed no individuals or the people at large for them, but his own bad luck and the kind of personal evil demon that haunted him. Then he addressed what he saw as Athens' great prospects for the future in winning the war. This all achieved a, such a success that the Athenians cleared him of all charges, restored his confiscated property, ordered the Eleusinian priests to revoke the curses that they had called down on him, and threw into the sea the stella on the Acropolis that bore his condemnation. The people then adorned him with a crown of gold and elected him as Strategos Autocrator, or General-in-Chief, with sole command on both land and sea in the east meaning that he now single-handedly replaced the board of ten strategoi. According to an inscription, on his proposal, the people also ratified all treaties that he made in the field. However, even at this moment, which was the height of his popularity, Plutarch records that the high priest of the Eleusinian Mysteries, a man named Theodorus, obeyed the order to revoke the curse, but did so only begrudgingly, saying, quote, I invoke no evil on him but only if he does no wrong to the city, end quote. His reservation, no doubt, reflected the continued suspicion and ill will of some Athenians, and it served as a reminder to Alcibiades that he would maintain his position only so long as he was successful. Xenophon says the timing of his arrival struck some Athenians as a bad omen for both he and the state. Since he had returned to Athens on the day of the Plantaria, we discussed this ceremony in episode 62, but it occurred on the 25th day of Thargelion, or early April, and was when the robes and the wooden cult statue of Athena Polius were removed and washed, and her statue thus was concealed from view. Because of this, it was regarded by the Athenians as the unluckiest day of the year to conduct business of any sort. Plutarch says that most Athenians didn't take any notice to this sort of thing, but to the small minority who still opposed him, it seemed as if the goddess had not wished to welcome him with kindly favor or goodwill, but concealed herself and rejected him. It's a bit ironic that after taking such pains over his arrival, Alcibiades had forgotten about this holy day. Regardless, he tried to take an important first step to counter such a negative impression with a religious elite especially the Eleusinian priests. As we also discussed in episode 62, traditionally every September, there was a sacred procession for the initiates from Athens to Eleusis, filled with much pomp and splendor. It was perhaps the most solemn and impressive event on the Athenian religious calendar. But for the last six years, the presence of the Spartan fort and their army at Decalia had made overland processions impossible. And so the initiates were forced to make a much less elaborate trip by sea. But Alcibiades, with his keen sense for the spectacular, recognized that he had the opportunity to rectify his religious problems with a bold stroke. After consulting with the Eleusinian priests, he convinced the Athenians to put on the procession once again, but that he would personally oversee their safety. He stationed sentries on the heights and sent out an advance guard at dawn and then his army provided armed protection along the sacred route. He supposed that this would either humble Aegis, 
if the king took no action, or he would win a significant victory that was sacred and approved by the gods in the full sight of his fellow citizens, who were eyewitnesses to his valor. As it were, the initiates were able to reach Eleusis and return without incident. Politically, it was a master stroke. This spectacle not only helped disarm religious suspicions about him, but it demonstrated a recovered Athens' military daring and prowess under its new commander-in-chief. Plutarch says that he came to be hailed by some as Mystagogos, or the leader of the mysteries, and that the majority of the people of the poorer classes were so captivated by his leadership that some even came to him and proposed that he make himself tyrant. He declined, but what he actually thought of himself and about tyranny is uncertain. The most influential citizens, though, were afraid and yearned for him to sail away as soon as possible. During the months of Athenian inaction, over 408 to 407 BC, the Peloponnesians had been busy rebuilding their fleet. As we mentioned, Alcibiades firsthand had seen the Spartans doing so at Githian, but no less significant was their change in leadership. All throughout the war, regular Spartiate naval commanders had done poorly against the Athenians. But following the disaster in Sicily, it was expected that the Spartans would finally wrestle control of the sea away from the Athenians. Not only had they failed at this, but now Alcibiades had reinvigorated the Athenian fleet. It became very obvious to the Spartans that a victory against the Athenians on sea would require a naval commander of a quality that the Spartans had never yet produced. Likely realizing how spectacular Gallippus had done in Sicily, and seeing just how bad they were getting thumped in the Hellespont, even with Persian support, the Spartans were now prepared to take the extraordinary measure of appointing their most talented man, even if he was outside the legitimate Spartiate circle, to the supreme naval command. As a result, in 407 BC, Lysander was appointed to replace Cratisipidus as the next Spartan navarch. Little is known of his early life, but like Gallippus, he was a Mothax, either as the son of a Spartiate father and a Helot mother, or his father had become impoverished and lost his citizenship status. In either case, we know that Lysander's father was Aristocleitus, who was a distant member of the noblest lineage as a Heraclidae, the family that claimed descent from Heracles. But he was not a member of the royal family, as his descendants at some point had lost all of their wealth. Therefore, he grew up in relative poverty, though he no doubt showed himself to have superior talents in fighting. His rise to eminence probably also owed much to powerful patronage. Typically, a Mothax would have been raised by a wealthier Spartiate, as the companion for his son. He sponsored his education in the Spartan Agoge, and therefore he would then be eligible for citizenship. In Lysander's case, he was the young companion of Agesilaus, the half-brother to King Aegis. Lysander also seems to have been on good terms with Aegis, as both men desired to crush the Athenian Empire and to replace it with a Spartan hegemony, a stance that many Spartans didn't take. There is every reason to support the traditional view that these two men were political associates. Plutarch in his life of Lysander states that he was notable even among the Spartans for his ambition, because despite his poor upbringing, he had grand visions of one day making himself master over all of Greece. In addition to getting in good with the royal family, he carefully cultivated personal relationships with influential Spartans in pursuit of his political ambitions. 
and the first stop on that political ladder was his appointment as Navarch. As soon as Lysander assumed command, he enrolled an adequate number of Peloponnesian soldiers and manned as many ships as he was able. Finally, in the spring of 407 BC, Lysander set out across the Aegean with a fleet that numbered 70 triremes. He first arrived at Rhodes before turning north, but instead of stopping at Miletus, he chose to continue on and to establish his base further north at Ephesus. That's because by this point, the Spartans must have realized the tactical shortcomings of having a base at Miletus. For one, its position just south of Samos meant that any Spartan fleet heading for the Hellespont could easily be intercepted by the Athenians. Not only did Ephesus not have that handicap, as it was north of Samos, but it was also closer to the Persian provincial capital of Sardis. But it had been so long since the Ephesians had maintained a fleet of their own. So Lysander immediately set about turning their harbor into a large port with its own commercial center and shipyard. He first ordered merchant vessels from every quarter to land their cargoes there, and he made preparations for the building of triremes. Over time, he managed to revive the traffic of its harbor and the business of its maritime market. According to Plutarch, it was thanks to his efforts that the city during his time, according to Plutarch, it was thanks to Lysander's efforts that the city during his time currently enjoyed its grandeur. But beginning such a project required time. Luckily, the Athenians' current inaction gave him the time needed to build his base and to drill his new crews on naval warfare. At one point in the summer of 407 BC, when Lysander learned that Cyrus was on his way to Sardis, he went there to wait for him, along with some Spartan envoys. It's hard to overstate the importance of this first meeting between the ambitious young prince and the equally ambitious Spartan Avarch in playing a decisive role in the outcome of the war, as their union dramatically altered the situation in the Aegean. Lysander, like Alcibiades, was also highly skilled in using charm to win over others, and it's likely that he was the only Spartan at the time with the tact necessary to win over Cyrus, and thus to gain the support that he would need for a victory and to help him achieve his ultimate goal of becoming absolute ruler over Greece. Cyrus found a man who would equally be willing to help him become king one day. The two became close friends almost immediately. Lysander blamed previous Spartan failures on Tissaphernes, and Cyrus ensured him that he, unlike Tissaphernes, would do everything possible to support the Spartans in pursuit of total victory. Cyrus had 500 talents with him and promised to spend even more money if necessary. And in a fit of bravado, the young prince even promised that if it wasn't enough, he would break up the gold and silver throne that he sat on and give it to him. Lysander, a little bit later, asked if Cyrus would pay each of the Peloponnesian soldiers six obols, or one drachma per day, which was double the standard rate of three obols for both them and the Athenians. He informed him that if this was the stipulated wage, the hired crews of the Athenians would desert to receive this higher pay from the Spartans, and therefore Cyrus ultimately would come to spend less money because the war would end sooner in this way. However, Cyrus declined and told him that he was only allowed to give what was specified in the treaty, as the Persians had agreed to pay three obols per person. But later on that evening, after dinner was finished, Cyrus asked Lysander if there was anything that he could do to please him the most. Lysander answered that it would please him the most if he would add just one more obol of pay for each of his sailors, for a total of four. Cyrus, for some reason, perhaps because of Lysander's charm, not only agreed to this, but also gave them back pay and an advance for a month. 
Only a royal prince, and the queen's favorite, could have raised the Spartans' pay without further authorization. Still, Lysander didn't want to be entirely dependent on the goodwill of the Persian prince. So to strengthen his own hand, when he got back to Ephesus, he called a meeting of the most powerful men from the city-states of Ionia. He urged them to form up into pro-oligarchic political groups, or hetairii, and assured them, that when he won the war, he would cede control of their cities over to each's group of oligarchs. This promise brought him strong support and large financial contribution. Plutarch observes that part of his goal here was to build allegiances among these wealthy and powerful individuals only to himself and not to Sparta, which he would use later for his own purposes. As you might expect, when news finally reached Athens about the Treaty of Boetios and the outcome of the meeting between Cyrus and Lysander, they were worried. So they immediately sent envoys to Tissaphernes. But he was clearly the wrong man for the job, as he was on the outs with the royal family. Still, they hoped to use him as a diplomatic intermediary to schedule a meeting with Cyrus. When Tissaphernes and the envoys journeyed to Sardis, he first held a private conference with a young prince, in which he urged him to resume his old policy of taking a position between both sides in order to wear them out. Cyrus, though, was firmly committed to Lysander and rejected this advice, and he even refused to meet with the Athenian envoys. Since their efforts to end the war through diplomatic agreements with Persia had failed once again, it was now clear that the fighting would have to continue. This forced them to formulate an alternate plan in order to crush the Spartan fleet, an outcome which they had hoped would convince Persia to retire from the war. But that would prove to be more difficult than they had imagined, because for the first time, the Spartans had the necessary means to win the war at sea. A first-class commander in Lysander, a large navy paid with Persian money, and their sailors were beginning to receive regular pay. Their recent success in the Hellespont now allowed the Athenians to turn their attention back to Ionia and the Aegean in what would become the final phase of the war. After the Eleusinian festival in the fall of 407 BC, Alcibiades' influence was at an all-time high. And so he managed to convince the Ecclesia to give him a force of 100 triremes, 1,500 hoplites, and 150 cavalry. As sole general, he also had the power to choose the colleagues that he wished to assist him. So he selected Aristocrates, Idamantus, Conan, and Thrasybulus. Together they sailed into the Aegean and began to recover the rest of the areas that were still in enemy hands. These included the key Ionian cities of Miletus and Ephesus, and the islands of Chios, Andros, and Tenos. This was necessary as he was not allocated any funds to pay his crews. That's because despite the recovery of some annual tribute, the state treasury was still very meager, at least when compared to the beginning of the war. And rather than sending their generals to sea with an adequate war chest from the public treasury, the Athenians had fallen into the bad habit of expecting them to raise the money for their crews while on the move. This was no way to run a war let alone win one. But the Ecclesia was not thinking long term as they were counting on Alcibiades to bring the war in Ionia to a speedy conclusion. Alcibiades should have protested at once and used his charisma and popularity to squeeze funds from somewhere. Unfortunately, he had sold himself to the people as a sort of demigod, so he was expected to achieve more with less. So since he was unable to pay his men, he set off on a round of money-raising raids. They first sailed to Andros, a critical island as it was on the route that was taken by grain ships coming from the Hellespont. 
Disembarking at Garion, they routed those Andrians and a few of the Laconians there who came out to oppose them. The Andrians then shut themselves up inside their city, and Alcibiades was unable to take the island without settling in for a costly siege. So he then set up a victory trophy, left a force behind of 20 ships under Thrassy Bullis to continue the effort, and departed. From Andros, he sailed with the remaining 80 ships southeast to Kaz and Rhodes in search of the necessary money to pay his men. While it made sense for him to accumulate as much money as he could before confronting the Spartan fleet, the delay gave the enemy even more time to improve with hard training and to build even more ships. By the end of the summer, Alcibiades must have gained just enough money because he finally sailed to Samos and then to Notium, which was the port of Colophon that was situated on the Ionian coast to the northwest of Ephesus. It was a minor port, but it could serve as a good launching point for an Athenian attack on Ephesus, and they could use it to cut off any Spartan ship from heading to the Hellespont. By this point, Lysander's force had grown from 70 to 90, thanks to his shipbuilding efforts at Ephesus, while Alcibiades had control of 80 ships, with another 20 still at Andros. Lysander, though he had drawn up his naval forces when Alcibiades was sailing into Notium, decided to stand down and beach them at Ephesus so that they could be maintenanced and dried out. That's because in spite of his numerical advantage, Lysander was in no hurry to fight. Even if the Athenian fleet sat at Notium, his crews had improved and were continuing to improve with each day from his rigorous training. While Plutarch records that the higher wages granted by Cyrus began to cause defections from the Athenians to the Spartans, Alcibiades continued to stay at Notium for another month or so, but by February 406 BC, he received word that Thrasybulus ultimately had failed to take Andros, and so had moved on and now was besieging Phocaea, and so he decided to sail north to assist him. This was probably part of his plan, though, as he hoped that if part of the Athenian fleet succeeded in taking Ionian cities, while the Spartans sat idle at Ephesus, it would force Lysander to finally come out and fight. If so, Phocaea was a good target for this strategy as it was well-situated to be used as a base for further attacks on Kine, Clazomenae, and even Chios. Alcibiades, though, only left with a few troop carriers, while all of the triremes remained behind at Nodium and were placed under the command of his personal Kybernetes, or helmsman, a man named Antiochus. According to Plutarch, when they were young men, Antiochus had caught Alcibiades' notice by capturing his runaway quail during a meeting of the Ecclesia, and ever since, he was his helmsman, dear friend, and drinking buddy. A fleet of this size, 80 ships, would traditionally have been commanded by one or more generals, or at least by a triarch, when no generals were available, which was the case here as it appears that all of Alcibiades' colleagues with command experience were away on other assignments. Even so, this appointment is unique in the entire recorded history of the Athenian navy, and Alcibiades' unconventional decision has been widely criticized by both ancient authors and modern scholars. But in his defense, Kybernetai were usually men of great experience and ability in naval warfare tactics, typically more than any triarch. Furthermore, Alcibiades did not expect, or even desire for a battle to take place in his absence. In fact, Xenophon records that Antiochus was given one simple order from Alcibiades that was not to attack Lysander's ships. He likely believed that a petty officer, such as Antiochus, would be far more likely to obey this command without question and avoid any sort of trouble while he was gone. So he chose someone who had been his direct subordinate and friend for many years. However, Alcibiades was sorely mistaken. 
and for some reason, Antiochus chose not to obey his direct order. Likely seized by the desire to gain personal glory, or because Alcibiades' rashness and opportunism rubbed off on him, he attempted to implement a stratagem that he thought would give the Athenians a total victory. Although Xenophon makes mention of this event, Diodorus has a much more extensive account of the ensuing Battle of Nodium, as it is called, and some of his details are corroborated on a fragment of the Oxyrhynchus papyri. According to Diodorus, seeking to draw the Spartans out to fight, Antiochus sailed out towards Ephesus with ten triremes, while the rest stayed behind. His plan was to draw the Spartans out into open waters in pursuit of his small force, after which the rest of the Athenians at Notium would ambush them and cut them off from their harbor, either forcing a major battle or chasing them down as they fled. This plan was very similar to that which had produced the stunning Athenian victory at Cyzicus. But conditions at Notium were utterly different from those at that battle, which depended on concealment deception, and making full use of geography and weather to hide the fleet's arrival, numbers, and location. In addition, Lysander had been studying the Athenian fleet for more than a month and had received accurate intelligence about its size from deserters who came to his camp. He would have also been well informed about the tactics employed at Cyzicus and was well aware that Alcibiades was away and that the Athenian fleet was in the hands of a man who had never before held command. And so Lysander wished to take this excellent opportunity in order to achieve something worthy of Sparta. As the ten Athenian ships sailed into the harbor of Ephesus, Antiochus sailed out ahead with his two lead triremes. He then rode ostentatiously past the Peloponnesian ships, which were drawn up on shore, and tried to boldly mock Lysander with much noise and laughter. Lysander was incensed, and so he launched three of his triremes immediately. They charged at the lead ship, which had Antiochus aboard. In this sudden Spartan attack, Antiochus's ship was sunk and he was killed. The nine trailing ships of the decoy force were then chased headlong by the entire Spartan fleet back to Notium, where the main Athenian force was caught unprepared by their sudden arrival. With no time to get in a good battle formation, and with no directing hand to give them commands, each Trearch had to launch his ship as soon as he could, so that the Athenians quickly became disorganized and undisciplined. In the ensuing fighting, the Spartans were in proper formation with a skilled commander, and the Athenians had neither. As a result, 15 Athenian triremes were captured, and 7 more were sunk. Afterwards, Lysander set up a victory trophy by Notium's harbor. Then, the Spartan fleet sailed back to Ephesus, having won an unexpected victory, while the Athenians fled to Samos to regroup. When Alcibiades received the disastrous news that his fleet had been defeated and Antiochus was now dead, he immediately lifted the siege of Phocaea and returned south to Samos. Thrasybulus and his 20 triremes came along with him, as they were now needed to reinforce the Athenian fleet. This brought the total number of Athenian ships to 78, when factoring in those 22 just lost. While the Spartans still had their 90, Alcibiades immediately sailed his fleet northeast to Ephesus and stationed them at the mouth of its harbor. But this further attempt to draw Lysander out into a battle proved unsuccessful. Despite his superior numbers, he saw no reason to risk it against a more formidable commander, and so he went back to a strategy of biding time. Therefore, the two fleets continued to watch each other across the water, until Alcibiades finally sailed back to Samos. Xenophon then says that shortly thereafter, Alcibiades led his entire force to Kine and began to ravage the territory around the city, hoping to get more money to pay his crews, 
whose morale now was very low. But taking him by surprise, the entire Chimaean army appeared out from their city and drove the Athenians back to their ships. Immediately, the Chimaeans dispatched an embassy to Athens to denounce his actions, following so soon after their defeat at Nodium. This fiasco and his failure earlier to take Andros would be additional blemishes for Alcibiades. Meanwhile, events back in Athens were only adding to Alcibiades' troubles. Diodorus reports that taking advantage of the absence of so many Athenian soldiers, on a moonless night under the, under the cover of darkness, Aegis led out from Desilia a massive force of 28,000 Peloponnesian and Boeotian troops, including 14,000 hoplites and 14,000 lightly armed troops, plus 1,200 cavalry. As they drew near Athens, Aegis's advance guard surprised some Athenian outposts. A few were killed, but the rest were scattered back behind their walls, where they alerted their fellow citizens about Aegis's impending invasion. Immediately, orders were issued for all men to present themselves under arms at their walls in order to defend it. By dawn, the Peloponnesian Boeotian army had made it about a mile from the wall. They were aligned in battle array, four men deep, and had extended their lines to cover approximately two-thirds of Athens's walls. The Athenians responded by sending out a force of cavalry that was roughly equal in number to that of the Peloponnesian and Boeotians, so about 1,200. These two forces clashed in front of the walls with the entire Athenian male populace watching from above. After a tough battle, the Athenian cavalry overpowered their opponents and chased them back to their line of infantry. But when Aegis advanced against them, he chased the Athenian cavalry back into the city. However, instead of beginning preparations to put the city under siege, he pitched camp about a mile northwest of the Dipolon Gate, in an area that would one day hold Plato's academy. Since he had abandoned the field, on the next day, the Athenian army went out to set up a victory trophy. In response, Aegis drew up his army in battle order once again and challenged them to fight for possession of it. As a result, the Athenian army posted themselves in formation along the wall. But as the Peloponnesians and Boeotians advanced to offer battle, a great throng of missiles were hurled down on them, and the Athenian defenders managed to drive them back. Aegis then retreated with his army, which ravaged Attica on their way back to Decalia. This put the Athenians in a foul mood when they learned of their defeat at Notium and their failures at Andros and Chime. Restored to favor after the victory at Cyzicus, Alcibiades had been placed in command with great expectations. Plutarch says that if ever a man was ruined by his own exalted reputation, it was Alcibiades. In his assessment, Alcibiades' continued successes gave him such a reputation for unbounded daring and heroism, so that when he failed in anything, the Athenians suspected that it was because he had not been inclined to do it. Therefore, the Athenians fully expected that Chios and the rest of Ionia would have easily been subjugated by now if their demigod sole general wished, and since it wasn't, he must have turned his back on them again. In particular, despite the fact that he wasn't at Notium, the people blamed him for the defeat due to his negligence and for the poor judgment of putting Antiochus in charge. Whatever his purpose in going to Phocaea, even Alcibiades must have realized after the fact that it was inexcusably reckless for him to have left all of his triremes in clear view of the enemy and in the hands of a man who had never commanded. Because of this, he was vulnerable once again, and his political enemies saw their chance to attack him. First up were those who hated him in the military. Plutarch says that his bitter enemy, Thrasybulus, not the general, shortly after Nodium, returned from the camp at Samos. 
and in the Ecclesia, he denounced Alcibiades for the way in which he conducted the campaign as if it were a luxury cruise. He blamed him for their recent losses and said that Alcibiades was more interested in sailing around, collecting money for himself, and engaging in debauchery by getting drunk and visiting brothels in Ionia, even while the enemy fleet was close by and getting stronger by the day. Next, Diodorus says that ambassadors from Chime finally arrived and accused him of attacking an allied city that had done no wrong, as we mentioned. At the same time, other Athenians stepped up and blamed him for not trying to capture Chime, and some even went so far as to argue that he had been bribed by the Persians. Then, the floodgates opened and others began to complain about his past misdeeds and of his collaboration with the Spartans and the Persians. Both old and new accusations began to rain down upon him in the Ecclesia, until someone, possibly Cleophone, proposed that he should be removed from office, and the motion passed. In addition, on another proposal of Cleophon, it was perhaps because of his links with Alcibiades that Critias was exiled around this time. Then, a board of ten new generals was appointed to take over command of the fleet. They included Conan, Thrasyllus, Diomedos, Pericles the Younger, Leon, Aristocrates, Archistratus, Protomachus, Aristonides, and Aristogenes. If you recall from episode 92, Pericles the Younger was Pericles' illegitimate son to Aspasia, who needed a special exception to be granted Athenian citizenship. Likely in his late 30s at this point, this is the first time that he is recorded as having held the office of Strategos, just like his father had all those years ago. In any case, although they may not have been enemies, it is no coincidence that these ten were all men who were not close to Alcibiades. Once the motion passed, Conan immediately was dispatched to take over the fleet at Samos. When he arrived and delivered the news, Alcibiades relinquished his command willingly, but he once again feared prosecution if he returned to Athens, where his many opponents were now waiting with a flurry of private lawsuits and who knew what public charges. In fact, there is evidence that he may have already been prosecuted by Cleophon. Whatever the case, he also knew that he had to leave Samos, as the morale of the forces had plummeted so low that they had become hostile to him too. Since he no longer was welcome in Spartan or Persian territory either, he took a single trireme and went into a self-imposed exile at the former Samian colony of Bysanthi on the Thracian Chersonese. Likely because he either anticipated this fate or had wanted insurance for the future, he had built a fortified castle there during his years with the fleet in the Hellespont. There, he would spend the rest of his life playing out the role of local warlord in conflicts between Greek settlers and Thracian tribesmen, much as Miltiades had done when he was ostracized a century earlier. Although Notium was not a serious military battle, in terms of the number of ships won or lost by either side, it had major political ramifications, as it had the simultaneous effect of both ending and launching two political careers and played a significant role in determining who would lead the forces of Athens and Sparta in the upcoming decisive battles of the war. In particular, it destroyed Alcibiades' fragile relationship with the Athenian people and caused his complete downfall in Athenian politics. At the same time, his disgrace also brought down his friends, Thrasybulus and Theramenes, who were not elected to the generalship for the following year. And so the defeat at Notium ultimately had strategic significance, as it not only reversed the momentum in the war that was growing so strongly in Athens' favor after Sisychus, 
But the Athenians lost the services of their three best generals at the very time when they most needed them to oppose the newly invigorated Spartans. On the other hand, his victory at Notium firmly established Lysander as a commander who was capable of defeating the Athenians at sea. And so he would be a leading figure for the Spartans in the final years of the war. As the situation stood, for the rest of 406 BC, Conan was now in command of the Athenian fleet at Samos. Although he was an experienced and reliable general, he unfortunately found a dispirited and depleted fleet when he arrived. The higher pay offered by Lysander and their losses at Notium now left him with only enough crews to man 70 of their, of their 100 total ships, which prevented him from undertaking any significant campaigns. On the other hand, Lysander was in the complete opposite position. He was well-funded, his fleet was growing, and the morale of his crews was at an all-time high. Unfortunately for him, the command of the Peloponnesian fleet would also change hands, though through no fault of his own, because Sparta's laws forbade any one person from serving in the position of Navarch for more than one consecutive year. Callicratidus was sent out to replace him. Like Lysander, Callicratidus was also a Mothax, but that's, but that's essentially where the similarities between the two stopped. Callicratidus was very young, probably not much over 30 years old, and he lacked the personal ambition of Lysander. Diodorus characterizes him as a man who is straightforward without guile, who is not yet experienced in the ways of foreigners, but is the most just of the Spartans. Despite this, there are compelling reasons to believe that the rivalry that will develop between these two was more so about policy rather than simple competition and personal ambition. That's because back in Sparta, it would seem that relations with Persia had split the Spartans into two factions. Callicratidus was part of the moderate, traditionalist faction of King Pleistoanax and Pausanias, which favored peace and coexistence with Athens and opposed a Spartan empire abroad. That's because they feared the impact of money and luxury from profits of empire and wanted to return to the austere principles of the Lycurgan constitution. They also had their doubts about the wisdom and morality of fighting alongside Persia against fellow Greeks. This, of course, contrasts with the views of King Aegis and Lysander, whose policy was one of full cooperation with the Persians, and they wanted to defeat the Athenians and to establish a Spartan hegemony over Greece. It's likely that Lysander's close friendship with Cyrus and his organization of Ionian oligarchs personally loyal to him aroused suspicions in Pausanias's faction which led to the choice of a more moderate man, like Callicrates, to replace him. Unsurprisingly, friction immediately arose between these two as soon as Callicrates arrived at Ephesus in April of 406 BC. Lysander greatly resented his appointment, even though he knew it was Spartan law, and so he made sure that there was no easy transfer of power. Xenophon says that when Lysander handed over the fleet, he did so begrudgingly and even showed off by proclaiming himself to be the ruler of the sea and the one who has conquered the Athenians in the sea battle. Callicratidus, though, challenged his boasts by urging Lysander that since he is the lord of the sea, he should sail past the Athenians at Samos and deliver his fleet to Miletus, because surely the conquered Athenians would be too fearful to stop the one who rules over them. Lysander did not take the bait and tactfully said instead that he would not interfere with another's command. He then sailed directly back to Sparta, but this interaction would set the tone for the rivalry. Despite what he said about interfering with Callicratidus' command, that rivalry wouldn't stop, with Lysander now back at Sparta. Likely at his instigation, 
Lysander's supporters among the troops at Ephesus at once began to undermine their new commander by spreading the view among their present allies that Callicratidas was incompetent and inexperienced when compared to Lysander. In doing so, the men made a criticism not only of Callicratidas, but of the entire Spartan system of changing naval commanders every year by saying, quote, The Spartans blundered most seriously by changing naval commanders, and that because of this, unsuitable men were often in charge. Men who were barely familiar with naval matters, and who did not know how to get the most of their men. And that by sending commanders who were without experience of the sea, and not known by the men serving, the Spartans were running the risk of suffering some calamity. End quote. The young Navar met the taunts head on though, and he called together all of the Spartans in the fleet and declared to them that he is prepared to give up the command to anyone if they should believe that they could do it better than he could. But then he cautioned that to do so would be disobeying the orders of Sparta, and so he would need to sail home and report the state of affairs. This speech put an end to any dissent, as no Spartan would dare suggest that he would disobey an order or risk Callicratidas returning home to report their mutinous behavior. Still, Lysander had left Callicratidas with another problem. When he left office, he still had a portion of the money that Cyrus had given him. But instead of giving it to his successor, Lysander chose to give it back to Cyrus, which left Callicratidas without the funds that he so desperately needed for the upkeep of the fleet. He did this in order to impede the young Navarch. So Callicratidas was obliged to go to Cyrus at Sardis and ask for the money to pay his men. But the young prince, who preferred Lysander, humiliated him by forcing him to wait two days before even holding an audience with him. Then, after two days of waiting, he had his doorkeepers refuse the request by mockingly stating that Cyrus was at leisure now and was drinking wine so he would not be accepting strangers. And so the Spartan Navarch departed in anger back to Ephesus. This affront now caused him to be more hostile to Lysander's policies than ever before. According to Xenophon, he was convinced that the Greeks were in a most miserable condition because they flattered the Persians for the sake of money. And when he returned home, he planned to reconcile the Athenians and the Spartans. So attempting to declare Spartan independence from Persia, Callicratidas began to implement a new strategy. His first step was to move the Spartan headquarters from Ephesus back to Miletus. He chose to give up the more strategic location because it was under Lysander's thumb and because Miletus opposed the Persians and was a better place for him to independently raise money for the fleet. Once at Miletus, he sent to Sparta to ask for money and then called an assembly of the Milesians where he revealed his frustrations with Cyrus and his new policy and asked for funds to fight the war. He ends his speech by urging them forward, saying, quote, let us show the Persians that even without them, we may take vengeance on our enemies, end quote. So warmly was this appeal received that after he had finished, many Milesians rose in excitement and proposed to grant him money, both from the state treasury and private contributions. Seeing the excitement among their people, even Lysander's friends at Miletus did not dare to withhold contributions. Afterwards, Callicratidas also received aid from Chios. Ultimately, Callicratidas obtained the funds to fit out 50 more ships with crews made up of men from Chios, Rhodes, and other allies. This brought the fleet to a total of 140, which was twice as many as Conan possessed. But he knew that the Athenians were already preparing major reinforcements of their own so he was eager to force a battle as soon as possible, in the hopes that a great victory might encourage more financial support from Sparta's Greek allies. 
Therefore, with his entire force, Callicratidas sailed out against the Athenian stronghold of Delphinion in the territory of the Chians. The Athenians were dismayed at the great size of this enemy force and immediately abandoned their fortress. Callicratidas then leveled it to the ground before sailing against Teos, where at night his forces took the city by storm and plundered it. Then he sailed to the lesbian city of Methymna. He must have believed that if he could bring over Methymna, then he could potentially move to capture the rest of Lesbos. And possession of this island would clear the way for him to move Sparta's fleet once again into the Hellespont, where he would be able to thwart the all-important Athenian grain supply line. But Methymna was an Athenian stronghold with an Athenian garrison in place and a pro-Athenian government in charge. So when the Methymnians refused to go over to the Spartan side, his forces made an assault against the city and laid siege to it. At first, they were successful, but soon afterward, with the help of some traitors among the Methymnians, Callicratidas' forces took Methymna by storm. The people were spared, but were put in chains as prisoners, while his soldiers plundered Methymna of its great wealth and divided up all of its movable property. Then Callicratidas gathered all of the captives into the Agora. Sparta's allies pressed him to sell all of them into slavery for cash, but Callicratidas refused. Recalling Sparta's stated purpose for going to war in the first place, of bringing freedom to the Greeks, Xenophon records that he declared, quote, While I am in command, so far as is in my power, no Greek will be enslaved. End quote. This was the only way for Sparta to win the war without Persian help. They needed to keep their promise of liberating the Greeks so that it would encourage those cities still under Athenian control to rebel and to gain support from those already liberated. And so, on the next day, he released the Methymnian prisoners, but he sold into slavery all of the Athenians who had made up the garrison and all the prisoners who had already been slaves. At the same time, he sent a message to Conan at Samos, declaring that he would put an end to what he calls his illegitimate empire's love affair with the sea. The verb moikeo, used here, means to have sexual relations with another man's wife. So Callicratidas is warning that the sea rightly belongs to him in Sparta, and that Conan and Athens essentially are illegally controlling it. Although Conan had used the time, as Diodorus puts it, to have his fleet prepared better for battle as no previous general had done, he still was badly outnumbered. In fact, under his command was a moderate-sized fleet of 70 ships, whereas Callicratidas had recently picked up an additional 30 from his allies for a total of 170, and his fleet was manned by first-rate crews. Despite being at a more than two-to-one disadvantage, the threat to Lesbos, the chief barrier preventing a Peloponnesian return to the Hellespont, finally compelled Conan to move his ships towards the Hecatonesi Islands, which were situated to the east of Methymna. Alongside him were two of his co-generals, Leon and Archistratus. At dawn, when Callicratidas saw Conan's fleet at Samos putting out to sea, he set off in pursuit to intercept them. At their approach, Conan ordered his ships to flee towards Mytilene, but the pursuing Peloponnesians caught them at the mouth of its harbor, where they were forced to fight an ad hoc naval encounter. Diodorus provides most of the details for the so-called Battle of Mytilene. He says that as the crew sang the battle song and trumpeteers sounded the attack, Conan raised from his flagship a red banner, which was the signal for the Trearchs to prepare to turn about and engage the enemy. The Peloponnesians as they so often did, had fallen into disorder in their pursuit of the enemy. 
Therefore, as they hastily tried to get back into proper position, Conan tried to make clever use of the opportunity by charging at them. The Athenians managed to damage some enemy ships and broke the oars off of others. Those remaining of the Peloponnesians began to backwater while waiting for the rest of their fleet to catch up. Those on the Athenian left pressed upon them with great eagerness, but when the rest of the Peloponnesians had finally arrived, they were hopelessly outnumbered, and it was only a matter of time until they were defeated. So seeing no other means of deliverance, Conan ordered his fleet to backwater and to flee for safety onto the beach, where his ships were drawn beneath the walls. Callicratidus then anchored his fleet in the harbor and began to blockade it, but he found that Conan had made clever use of the Athenians' position inside the harbor. In its shallowest places, he had sank small boats filled with rocks, and in its deepest waters, he had anchored merchant ships with yard arms acting as catapults to hurl large stones at the enemy's front lines. So Callicratidus was forced to disembark his soldiers on a beach at an unspecified location, either to the west or east of the city. There, they pitched a camp and then set up a victory trophy. The following day, they loaded back onto their ships and went about to try and break up the harbor's barrier. Conan first sent out 40 of his triremes. Some were assigned to protect the merchant ships turned into catapults, while others were placed in the harbor to hold off any who might try to disembark there. When the two sides began to clash along the harbor's breakwater, Conan and his 30 other triremes pushed out to sea and joined the battle. But undeterred, Callicratidus had lined up his best soldiers on his ship's decks and made the sea battle essentially an infantry fight. As they pressed upon the Athenian ships, they boldly boarded their prowls and clashed in hand-to-hand combat. A tough fight ensued, with heavy casualties, as all participants exposed themselves without regards to risk. Many Athenians and Mytilenians were cut down. Many Spartans were wounded too by missile fire from the shore and the large stones being hurled at them from the merchant ships. Fighting lasted for a very long time and with a great amount of effort extended until finally the superior numbers in ships of the Peloponnesians and the strength of their marines forced the Athenians to flee back to Mytilene. In total, 30 Athenian triremes were captured though the crews managed to escape, and they were able to get the remaining 40 to safety and draw them up onto the beach beneath the walls. Still, Conan's escape deprived Callicratus of a total rout, and one that might have won the war. If the Athenian fleet had been entirely destroyed here, the Spartans would have been unopposed in taking Lesbos and Athens' undefended naval base at Samos and then could move equally unimpeded to the Hellespont to blockade the grain route. But as it were, they now had to settle in for a blockade of Mytilene. With the blockade in place, Callicratidus then disembarked his troops near the harbor, and he was met by his land forces under the command of a Spartan named Thorax. These were mostly made up of Chians, as well as the entire force of the Methemnians, who presumably now were willing to do Spartan bidding, since Callicratus hadn't sold them into slavery. Thorax then began to lay siege of Mytilene, so that the city was now being pressed by both land and sea. At one point, Callicratus managed to capture an additional 10 of the 12 Athenian ships that had appeared in the Straits of Mytilene in an attempt to bring aid to the besieged Athenians and Mytilenians. These were led by the general Diomedon, but he managed to get away with his own ship plus one other. And so, besieged by both land and sea, and with no other reinforcements in the vicinity to help them, Conan found himself with no place from where he could easily procure food and powerless to act against the vastly superior forces that surrounded him. 
He knew that it was imperative for the Athenians at home to learn of the situation and to send help as soon as possible. And so at dawn one morning, Conan picked out two of his fastest triremes. Aboard each of these, he also placed his fastest rowers, as well as ten marines lowered down in the hold. By placing them in the hold, he might have lowered the center of gravity of the ship and thereby increased its speed. But also he might have tried to fool the enemy by concealing their position. He also spread the screens over the sides of each ship. These were used primarily to protect the crew from enemy missiles, but also to hide the crewmen more effectively. Basically, he hoped that he could trick the Peloponnesians into thinking that these two vessels were not Athenian, but were non-combatants belonging to another city-state. Therefore, they might not worry about pursuing after them. Conan sent them out into the harbor like this, where they remained for the rest of the day, and in the evening, when it was dark, he brought them ashore so that the enemy could not see. They repeated this process until the appropriate day arrived. Finally, on the fifth day, at midday, when those guarding them had grown careless, the two triremes sailed out from the harbor through the Peloponnesian blockade, with one setting course for the Hellespont and the other for Athens. He did so when the men in charge of the blockade were taking their meals on land, which is where meals were normally taken as it's not possible to prepare and serve meals to a crew of 200 men on a single trireme. When they realized what was transpiring, the Peloponnesians tried to put out to sea as fast as they could to bring assistance, cutting their anchor lines and hurrying out in disarray. By sunset, they managed to track down and capture the one heading for the Hellespont, bringing it back in tow with all of its crew aboard as prisoners. But the other escaped and made it to Athens to report their plight. Meanwhile, Callicratidus' success convinced the young Persian prince Cyrus that the Navarch was now on the verge of a complete victory, because a Spartan victory without any Persian help and by a hostile commander would have been disastrous for his reputation and ambition. He immediately changed his stance and sent funds to pay for the fleet, including a gift for the commander himself. Because he was low on funds, Callicratidus begrudgingly accepted the money for his men, but he remained personally cold to Cyrus. As Plutarch reports, Callicratidus said, quote, There was no need for a private friendship between himself and Cyrus, but the agreement that had been made with all the Spartans was enough for him. End quote. Conan's messenger ship reached Athens about mid June. The unexpected news from Mytilene shook the city to its foundations. All of their gains since the Sicilian expedition now suddenly stood in jeopardy. Should the Spartans capture Conan and his men, the Athenians would be forced to beg for terms, just as the Spartans had done after Sphacteria and Pylos. Therefore, no effort was spared to avoid that fate, and the Athenian ecclesia wasted no time in approving extreme measures in the building and manning of a relief fleet. They had about 40 ships available at Piraeus, and in an extraordinary effort, they were able to build an additional 70 in just a month's time, for a total of 110. To pay for it, they melted down golden statues of Nike on the Acropolis and struck coins from the gold. Using these and other golden and silver bullion that were stored in temple treasuries, they were able to cover the expenses. One of the generals, Pericles the Younger, handled the finances and the fitting out of the new fleet, which was built using timber and ore supplied by the Macedonian king Archelaus. Upon their completion, Pericles then conveyed them to Athens. Although temple treasuries and Macedonian forests could provide the raw material for the war, a lack of manpower presented another problem. The best crews were with Conan, 
and even those who had some experience, would still be insufficient to man all of the new ships. So the Athenians were forced to use inexperienced men as rowers, including farmers and wealthy men who had only served in the cavalry. Furthermore, but even if only the oldest and youngest men stayed behind in Athens to guard the walls against another attack from Aegis at Decalia, a full conscription of the remaining male population would still fall well short. Fortunately, though, Athens possessed one currency even more precious than silver, that of citizenship. Indicative of the severity of the crisis that the Athenians found themselves in, the ecclesia took the extraordinary step to pass a motion that offered Athenian citizenship to any medic residing in Athens in return for his service with the navy. But when even that failed to provide the necessary numbers for 110 triremes, wealthy Athenians were forced to step up and offer to free some of their own slaves so that they too could man the oars. When they heard this offer, the Athenian people were fired up with a spirit of emulation and in a second emergency meeting the Ecclesia, they voted that any slave who would risk their life at sea for Athens would not only receive freedom, but citizenship too. As a result, thousands of slaves came forward. But there was no time to train these new crews, and the relief fleet, full of raw recruits, set sail from Piraeus about a month after the arrival of the trireme from Mytilene. And so, for the first time in the war, the Athenians would find themselves about to engage in a sea battle, with a fleet that was tactically inferior to their enemy. In addition, so important was this mission that unlike any other fleet in the war, it was decided that this one was to be commanded collaboratively by eight generals. Aristocrates, Aristogenes, Diomedon, Aristonides, Lysias, Pericles the Younger, Protomachos, and Thrasyllus. The only three of the ten strategoi for 406 BC not included were Conan, Archistratus, and Leon, as they were the ones besieged at Mytilene. Therefore, Lysias was elected as a substitute, and supreme command was given to Thrasyllus. In addition, Thrasybulus and Theramenes were present with the fleet, but only served as triarchs of individual ships. In July, the Athenian fleet arrived at Samos, where they picked up an additional 45 ships from the Samians and other allies, bringing its size to 155. But since Callicratus preferred not to be caught between what was left of Conan's fleet in the harbor of Mytilene and this oncoming Athenian reinforcement fleet, he left behind 50 of his ships and the land forces under the command of Etionikos to continue the siege, while he sailed the remaining 120 vessels to intercept those coming up from Samos. In addition, Callicratus led his ships to Cape Malia at the southeastern tip of Lesbos. From there, he could see the Athenians as they approached the Argonusai, or White Islands, which was an archipelago of three islands just off the mainland and about two miles east of the Cape. Between the two largest Argonusai islands was a sheltered lagoon, and to the north of them was the other, more smaller of the three. When the Athenian fleet arrived, they established their camp on the opposite mainland. They learned at once of the close proximity of the enemy, and so they made preparations for battle the following morning. Callicratus then saw their campfires and received intelligence, which confirmed their location and that they were indeed the Athenians. So he wanted to put out to sea in the middle of the night and attack them completely unaware. But heavy rain and winds came down that prevented this, and so he had to wait until the storm let up. That night, Diodorus reports what was likely an apocryphal story. 
He says that Thrasyllus had a dream that he was back in Athens in the theater of Dionysus and that he and the other generals were part of the chorus, singing and dancing. The play that they performed was Euripides' Phoenician Women, which we mentioned earlier. While their opponents in the drama competition performed Euripides' Suppliants, both plays had the same theme, the fate of unburied and dishonored corpses. Thrasyllus and his team won the prize, but in his dream, they all lost their lives, just as those who had waged the campaign against Thebes in his play. When he awoke, he immediately told this dream to a seer, who interpreted it to mean that they would be victorious in the coming battle, but that the generals would all die. The prediction of victory was announced to the men, though not of the generals' deaths, at their own request. On the other hand, when pre-battle omens were divined in the Peloponnesian camp, a seer foretold that Callicratidas, as a victorious admiral, would die in the fight. At this, the Spartan Navarch was said to have remarked that if he should die, it would not lessen the fame of Sparta. Then he assembled his whole force and encouraged them with a few words. He ended his speech by saying, quote, So eager am I to enter battle for my country, that although the seer foretells victory for you, but death for me, I am none the less ready to die. Accordingly, knowing that after the death of commanders, their forces are thrown into confusion, I designate at this time as admiral to succeed me, in case I meet with some mishap, Clearchus, a man who has proved himself in deeds of war. End quote. With these words, Callicratus's troops wished to emulate his valor and were more eager for battle. They then began to board their ships. Meanwhile, the Athenian generals also exhorted their troops and began to man their triremes. A major sea battle was imminent. By dawn, the sky had cleared and the sea had calmed. So Callicratus set out towards the Argonusai Islands. They sailed towards the Athenian line, abreast with their 120 ships side by side, with Callicratus commanding the Peloponnesians on the right and the Boeotians and Eubians under a Theban named Thrasyndas on the left. For the first time in the war, a Spartan commander and his crews were more experienced and more skilled than their Athenian counterparts, as Athens' best crews had been at sea with Conan and were now stuck at Mytilene. And so, to counter the Spartans' superior skill and maneuverability, Thrasyllus had worked out a plan that would keep his inexperienced crews close to the protection of the islands. In fact, he would incorporate the islands themselves into the Athenian battle line. In doing so, he implemented several new and innovative tactics to be used for the first time in Greek naval history. In the center, he placed the Samians and their other allies. They had 35 ships and were arranged in a single line in front of Garapadazi, the more western of the two main islands. This squadron acted as a sort of reserve force, and on the island itself was the Athenian camp. With the main Athenian forces, he divided them into two wings, stationed to the left and the right of Garapadazi. The left faced the open sea to the south, while the right wing extended all the way out to the lonely islet at the northern end of the archipelago. This islet thus protected the outermost ships of the Athenian right against any attempt at a parapluse, in which a trireme with greater speed rode around the end of the enemy line to hit from the side or the rear. These two Athenian wings were further divided into eight autonomous divisions each with 15 ships and each commanded by one of the eight generals. Therefore, there were four divisions, four generals, and 60 ships on each wing. This was beneficial as it decentralized command and control and would allow each unit to act independently, 
a great advantage when needing to perform offensive maneuvers in such a topographically unique position. The Athenian generals were positioned as such in the battle. Protomachus and Thrasyllus, front right, Lysias and Aristogenes, back right, Aristocrates and Diomedon, front left, and Pericles the Younger and Aristonides, back left. In addition, instead of the traditional single line, these two wings were in a staggered double line, with each ship in the rear filling a gap between the ships vertically in the front. They also had twice the regular distance between them horizontally. This aimed to prevent the Spartans from being able to use the other popular naval fighting maneuver known as the Deke Plus, in which a trireme raced into a gap between two enemy ships and then sharply turned to strike one of them in the side. If the Spartans attempted this against their widened, staggered double line, a ship from the second line could move up to attack the Spartan ship or allow one of the triremes on either side of it to turn and ram it. And so, as the Athenians sailed out to meet the advancing Spartan fleet, the eight generals began to align their squadrons into Thrasyllus's carefully crafted battle position. As a result, thanks to their widened gaps, their left already outflanked Callicratitus and the Peloponnesians on their right. But when they extended it even more out to the open sea, it looped even further and threatened to encircle the Peloponnesian line. Such a ploy, which separated a squadron from the rest of the line, would normally have left a gap that the Spartans could exploit. But as we mentioned, the staggered double line formation allowed the front detachment on the extreme Athenian left to widen the wing, while the rear detachment came forth to close the gap. The superior Athenian numbers, combined with these unforeseen tactics, created a dangerous situation for the Spartans. And Callicratitus' personal helmsman, Herman of Megara, immediately advised him that they should retreat as it would be folly for them to attack the Athenians now. To fight against numerical odds while at a tactical disadvantage is unwise at any time, let alone when the Spartans had no reason even to force a battle. Time was on their side, as the Athenians were out of money and couldn't keep the fleet at sea for much longer. Delay also was likely to bring further desertions. Furthermore, to rescue Conan, the new arrivals would eventually have no choice but to cross the open sea to Mytilene. If that should happen, they could easily be encircled and defeated. But Callicratitus was an old-school Spartan who believed that battles were won with courage and that retreat was unthinkable. So the advice of Herman of Megara was unfathomable to him. According to Xenophon, he replied that Sparta would conduct itself no worse if he were to die, but he would bring shame if he were to flee. It's easy to think that rashness and inexperience of a young Navar are the only things that factored into his decision here. But it was a bit more nuanced than that. Because despite the fact that time was on the Spartan side, time was not on the side of Callicratitus, as he needed to achieve a victory before winter and before he became even more dependent on Persian money once again. And so, with this in mind, the Navarch insisted on pushing on. Then, the trumpeteer sounded the charge, and the Spartan fleet sailed forwards. To face the threat of encirclement and an inability to extend his own line, Diodorus says that Callicratitus divided his force into two fleets, one on each wing, so that he fought a double battle. This left him without a center, though, as he gambled that it was more dangerous to be encircled than to be open to an attack from the single line of enemy ships in the center. 
In fact, he made the right decision, as the Athenian center remained in position during the first part of the battle as a sort of reserve force. When the two sides clashed, fighting ensued for some time, and all of the non-combatants in the Athenian camp lined the top of the cliffs on the island to spectate. As the Athenians neither advanced nor retreated, the naval action took on the character of a land battle, as if one hoplite phalanx were shoving and heaving against another. The turning point, though, came with the death of the Spartan Navarch. Since he had heard from the seer that death awaited him, he had grown eager to achieve for himself a glorious ending, fitting for a Spartan. Consequently, his flagship was the first to break through the Athenian front line, and together with a few other triremes, he ran the ship of Lysias and destroyed his own oars in such a way that they were rendered useless. In addition, he rammed Pericles' trireme with such force that his beak got stuck in its hull. Because of this, Pericles threw an iron grappling hook onto Callicratus' ship. When it was fast and tight, Pericles and his marines leaped across and fought their way along the deck of the Spartan flagship. Either the impact of the ramming or a blow from an Athenian soldier knocked Callicrates off his feet and he fell into the sea. The weight of his armor carried him to the bottom and he disappeared into the deep ocean water. With the death of their commander and the loss of their flagship, resistance on the Spartan right immediately collapsed. As they began to retreat, the Athenian left surged after them and in their pursuit, they managed to capture nine of the fleeing ships. The Boeotians and Eubians on the Spartan left, though, continued to resist for a bit longer. But ultimately, they too were unable to stand up to the Athenians, and so they joined their right wing in flight. When the Spartan formation finally collapsed, the Samians and other allies in the Athenian center then joined in the pursuit, and they destroyed many fleeing ships. Since the Athenian right prevented escape to the north, the only ships that managed to get away had to sail south to Chios and Kyme. According to Diodorus, Argonusi was the greatest naval battle in the history of Greeks fighting against the Greeks. In total, over 20,000 were killed that day. The Spartans lost 77 of 120 ships, which is over 60% of their entire force. On the other hand, the Athenians only lost 25 of their 155 vessels, and they won a magnificent victory. Defeated Argonusi for the Athenians would have likely meant defeat in the war, but with a ragtag fleet, they managed to destroy a qualitatively superior force. And so, once again, thanks to the effort of their former slaves turned citizens, the Athenians ruled the sea. But even that would be short-lived. Because in the immediate aftermath of the battle, the Athenian commanders had no time to relish their victory, but had to decide which of several pressing tasks to focus their attention on. First, of their 25 ships that were either sunk or disabled, the wrecks of 12 still floated with around a 1,000 men struggling for their lives in the water, clinging to their vessels, while the bodies of the dead were scattered on or around the wreckage. These men needed to be rescued, and these bodies needed to be collected for a proper burial, since the souls of those left unburied would wander eternally in Hades, unable to find a resting place. The standard procedure after a battle was for the victorious fleet to land and to determine how the survivors and corpses were to be collected and who would be responsible for doing so. Usually, there was sufficient time to accomplish these tasks. But in this case, as the battle came to an end, from their pursuit, the Athenian fleet became scattered over four square miles. So it took quite a bit of time for everyone to rendezvous back at their camp. 
Finally, after the Triarchs all made it back, the generals then debated their next move. Diomedon proposed that the fleet form a single line and row through the field of battle to pick up any corpses and rescue all shipwrecked Athenians and their allies. Another general, Aristonides, proposed that they should set out immediately for Mytilene to liberate Conon. He believed that by now, Etianicus, who was left in charge of the blockade of Mytilene, would have received news of the outcome of the battle. When a dispatch boat arrived, Etianicus feared that the victorious Athenian fleet would sail in behind and destroy his entire force. So he decided to quickly break the siege of Mytilene and sail off with his 50 ships to join the remnants of the Spartan fleet, which was now concentrating at Chios. Altogether, the Spartans could muster another fleet of 93 ships and challenge the Athenians once again. As it just so happened, this is what Aristonides had predicted. And so he argued that decisive action needed to be taken against the 50 ships of Etianicus before they could link up with the other 43, in order to prevent the Athenians from having to fight another massive naval battle that day. Thrasyllus then proposed a compromise to address both of these concerns. All eight generals would sail with their 80 ships to Mytilene, fully anticipating another battle if they succeeded in cutting off the 50 ships of Etianicus while two of the Triarchs, Thrasybulus and Theramenes, both of whom were former generals of great talent and experience, as well as the lower-ranking officers known as Taxiarchs, would remain behind with the remaining 47 ships to comb through the floating wreckage for survivors and the bodies of the dead. This was agreed upon, but both of these missions were thwarted by the sudden arrival of a storm from the north, which drove both the rescue fleet and the main fleet back to the islands and reunited the force. The vast expanse of broken halls and shipwrecked humanity was suddenly on the move, shifting southwards with the storm. Apparently the storm was so terrifying, and the waves were so large, that according to Diodorus, the men refused orders to go back out in it. The Triarchs did their best, but the conditions only worsened, which made further argument moot. The generals had no choice but to halt, and so, on the beach, they set up a victory trophy and settled down to wait out the storm. Unfortunately, by the time that the weather had improved, all of the shipwrecked sailors had drowned, possibly between 4,000 to 5,000 men, and the recovery of the dead now was almost impossible, as they by now had fallen to their watery graves. So while grieving for those lost, there was no other course of action but for the whole fleet to set out for Mytilene. Along the way, Conan and his 40 ships met with news that Etianicus and his 50 had escaped, so they pursued the Spartan force to its base at Chios. But since Etianicus was not foolish and didn't risk another fight, the Athenians returned to their base at Samos. At Athens, the news of the unexpected victory was met with jubilation, but their joy was quickly tarnished when they had learned about their general's inability to carry out the rescue and recovery mission. As a result, the people became subsumed in fury, and a bitter rhetorical battle in the Ecclesia broke out over who was responsible for the failure to recover the corpses. Theramenes and Thrasybulus had returned to Athens from Samos at once, probably to defend themselves. But since no one in the city actually knew the precise details of what took place, and that they were the ones in charge of it, they didn't face any accusations. The Athenians' wrath continued to increase, though, and they began to question the conduct of their generals, who they assumed naturally were the ones in charge. When the generals learned that the public was angry over the failed rescue, 
they assumed that Thrasybulus and Theramenes were responsible for discrediting them. And accordingly, they wrote letters to the Ecclesia, denouncing the two Trierarchs and blaming them for the disaster, as they had been ordered to pick up the dead. This was a serious misjudgment on their part, as the two Trierarchs, who could have helped them, had no choice now but to defend themselves. They did not deny the seriousness of the storm, but they instead placed blame on the generals, likely for wasting precious time in vain pursuit of the Spartan fleet and in debating over their next course of action. Diodorus says that after they presented this defense, public anger had now fully turned against the generals instead. The Ecclesia accordingly passed a motion deposing all eight generals from their office and ordered them to return to Athens at once to stand trial. Seeing the writing on the wall, two of them, Aristogenes and Protomachus, fled immediately into exile. But the other six chose to return with most of their ships as they hoped that they could use their crews to support them in the trial and thus clear their name. Of the original ten strategoi for that year, only Conan remained in Athens and did not hold the people's ire, since he had been held up at Mytilene and had no connection with the decisions made at Arganusai. On the other hand, Leon likely was on the messenger ship that made it back to Athens, and we know that Archistratus died during the Battle of Mytilene. The people also then elevated Adamantos and Philocles to join Conan as strategoi for the remainder of the year until the new elections. The procedure to which the deposed general submitted was probably the Athunai. The normal review at the end of every general's term of office, starting with his financial accounts, but including every aspect of his conduct. The first to be examined before the boule was Aristonides. According to Xenophon, at the time, the most influential demagogue type was Archidamus, and he made the accusation that when Aristonides was in the Hellespont, he stole funds from the people, referring to the two-obel daily allowance that was intended to relieve wartime poverty and hardship. Archidamus also made unspecified accusations against Aristonides' competency as general. Ultimately, he was convicted of several charges involving misconduct in office including the misappropriation of public money, and he was imprisoned. Perhaps he really did steal money from the people, but it's far more likely that this was just a trumped-up charge and that he was prosecuted first to test the waters because it was he who, during the deliberations after the battle, had proposed abandoning the survivors altogether and sending the whole fleet to Mytilene, and he may have been the easiest target among the six. The five remaining generals then came before the boule to present their accounts of the affair. They must have realized that casting blame on Theramenes and Thrasybulus was not doing them any favors. So they reverted back to their first argument, which laid blame on the magnitude of the storm. Ultimately, the counselors found that there was sufficient evidence of misconduct, and a man named Timocrates proposed that they should be imprisoned and turned over for trial in the Ecclesia. The trial, as you would expect, quickly turned into a witch hunt as to who all should be blamed for the failure to rescue the survivors. When Theramenes read the generals' original letter that blamed only the storm, he once again accused the generals. Although Xenophon makes it seem like that his attack on them here was unprovoked, we can assume that he and Thrasybulus were still angry that the generals had previously turned on them, a detail which is only found in Diodorus. And knowing full well that the Athenians were out to punish someone, there was no way that they could side with them again. This worked, and the Ecclesia turned sharply against the generals, 
shouting down their defenders and not permitting each adequate time to speak in their own defense in accordance to the law. Each tried to narrate what had happened, and under such pressure, they naturally turned upon their accusers once again and insisted that Theramenes and Thrasybulus had been given the responsibility of saving the survivors and collecting the corpses. But even then, they did not abandon their initial defense and still asserted that despite the fact that the two Trirarchs did not fulfill their orders, they were not to blame, but it should be the storm. They then brought in witnesses in the form of sailors in support of their claim. Their statements had a powerful effect, and the generals were able to win the sympathy of the crowd. A moderate, sensible outcome seemed likely, but then chance intervened. It grew dark before a vote could be taken, meaning that they wouldn't be able to accurately see the show of hands, which is how they traditionally voted in the Ecclesia. So they decided to postpone their decision until the following day. And Xenophon says that in the meantime, the people ordered the boule to come up with a proposal for a procedure for conducting a trial. Unfortunately for the generals, though, this first day of debate was followed by the festival of the Apaturia, which celebrates the rites of birth, manhood, and marriage, and brought families together from all over Attica. We discussed this festival in detail in episode 62. Ordinarily, this was an occasion of great happiness and unruly pleasure. But in this context, the absence of those young men who had just drowned at Argonusi was painfully evident, and it reawakened their powerful anger to hold someone or someones responsible. At the same time, the members of the Boule spent the evening determining what resolution they wished to introduce the following day. Xenophon says that Theramenes and his followers had persuaded one of the counselors, a man named Calixinos, to suggest a procedure most unfriendly to the generals, that the ecclesia alone should vote on their guilt or innocence. To make matters worse, this motion was put in the most prejudicial language possible, as it simply asked whether or not the generals should be found guilty for not rescuing the men who had won the victory in the land battle. Furthermore, they were to be tried together in mass and not as individuals, and the penalty put forth if they were convicted was the death penalty and the confiscation of their property. It's interesting that the formal proposer of the motion to condemn the generals was Calixenos, who otherwise does not show up on the historical record, and not the demigod Cleophon. But for some reason, the Boule approved this unusual and prejudicial proposal. And when the Ecclesia met the next day as planned, Xenophon says that Theramenes and his supporters also took advantage of the occasion of the Apatoria by arranging for a group of people to show up appearing as relatives of the dead who had just died. They wore black cloaks and shaved their heads as if they were in mourning and they demanded the people of the Ecclesia to take revenge for their lost relatives. Whether or not this was staged or authentic, Didor says that they, quote, begged the people to punish those who had allowed men that gladly died in defense of their country to go unburied, end quote. The presiding officers of the Ecclesia were the Britannes, who were randomly selected councilmen from whichever tribe was assigned to oversee the boule in a given month. At each meeting, at each meeting, one of the Pertanes was appointed as Epistates, or the president of the Ecclesia. By chance, the Epistates on this day was the philosopher Socrates, and this was the only time in his life that he was recorded to have held public office. And so, after completing the usual ritual of sacrifices and prayers, he opened the meeting by asking the Boule to read their agreed-upon proposal. As we mentioned, it called for the six generals to be tried, not separately, but together, and not in a court with a jury, but by the ecclesia itself that very day. 
the penalty if convicted would be death and the confiscation of their property. Each of the 10 tribes were to set up two urns, one marked guilty and the other not guilty. The citizens would then file past the urns and cast their ballots. The Athenians at times had imprisoned, tried, fined, or banished their generals, but they never put one to death for decisions made during battle. Equally unprecedented was the proposal to try the eight accused men as a group. The debate in the ecclesia that followed was highly emotional. To distract the people from questions of military consequences or judicial procedure, speakers came forward with sensational stories. One of them was a man claiming to be a survivor at Arganusai, who said that when his trireme had been rammed, he saved himself by clinging to a grain barrel that floated back to land. He recalled how drowning men in the water near him were screaming out for help. Since they were unable to save themselves, before they died, they pleaded for him to tell the Athenian people that the generals chose to abandon those who had risked themselves in service of their country. Some people called for an immediate vote, but some of the Pratanes, in such a heated atmosphere, dared to speak on behalf of the accused. In particular, Eurypolemus, a cousin of Alcibiades and Pericles, charged Calixenos with having made an illegal motion that was unconstitutional, and in doing so, he called forth the Graphe Paranomon. Some applauded this action, but another proposed that Eurypolemus and those who supported him should also be included in the charges made against the generals. This suggestion won such great support that Eurypolemus withdrew his opposition. Some of the Pertanes, though, still refused to put this question to a vote on the grounds that it was illegal and rushed. Nevertheless, Calixenos sensed the hostility of the crowd against the generals, and instead of even attempting a rebuttal, he proposed the same charges also be leveled against the recalcitrant Pertanes. The people responded with a roar of agreement, and this so frightened the Pertanes that almost all of them withdrew their objections and agreed to put the council's proposal to a vote all except for one. Alone among the Pratanes, Socrates held fast in his position, and after declaring that he would do nothing that was contrary to the law, he continued his refusal of putting the measure to a vote. Some years later, Plato in his Apology recorded Socrates defending his behavior here in a speech at his own trial. According to him, Socrates said, quote, I was the only one of the Pratanes who was opposed to the illegality, and I gave my vote against you, the Athenian people. And when the orders threatened to indict and arrest me, and you insisted and shouted, I decided that I must run the risk on the side of law and justice rather than to be on your side against justice because of fear of prisoner death, end quote. In addition to ethics, for Socrates, the issue was a personal one as well. One of the accused generals was the younger Pericles, who was a close friend and disciple of his. His chief accusers launched another vociferous attack against him, but he was used to opposition, and Socrates continued to stand his ground. Emboldened by Socrates' defiance, Eurypolemus rose again to speak, and Xenophon relays the very long speech that he delivered. In it, he asked that the generals should be granted one more day to prepare his own defense, and that each should be given a separate trial. He likely believed that over time, the strong emotions of the Athenians would fade, and therefore they would let reason rule. He then warns the Athenians against voting for an illegal procedure, like Calixanos' proposal, and tells them to try each according to the decree of Canonus, which provided for individual trials. Individual trials, before court or in some cases by the ecclesia, 
were the norm at Athens. So Calixenos' proposal for a decision on all the generals by one vote without hearing from them further was contrary to accepted standards. While scholars are also unsure what the decree of Canonis actually is, if it did provide for individual trials, it probably did not actually outlaw collective verdicts. Still, what Calixenos was proposing was against the accepted norm of Athenian law. Eurypolemus also suggests that they could try them by the law set up for those who commit sacrilege and treason. Both alternative options, though, would be according to legal procedures and not illegal ones. Once again, he entreats the Athenians to stand by their laws and reminds the ecclesia of the great victory that the generals had just won by capturing 70 enemy ships and argues that the plan the generals had in place for the rescue mission was competent and that the facts of the storm cannot be disputed. He even points out the absurdity of trying one of the generals, whose name is not given, who had been swimming ashore from a sinking flagship at the time that the post-battle decisions were made, and therefore he could not bear any legal responsibility for the failure to rescue the others. He concludes his defense of the generals by saying, quote, Do not, men of Athens, in the face of victory and good fortune, act as if you had been defeated and met with disaster, and do not be cruel in condemning these men for treason instead of recognizing their helplessness when confronted by what were acts of God. These were men who could not carry out their orders because of the storm. It would be more just to crown these men as victors with garlands than to punish them with death because you have been persuaded by wicked men. End quote. When Eurypolemus finished speaking, he officially made a motion that the generals should be tried separately against the motion of the boule that they should all be judged together. Socrates willingly consented to this. When these two motions were put to a vote, Eurypolemus's proposal initially won a majority of votes. But parliamentary maneuvering undid this victory, as some man named Menocles brought forth an objection, and in the end, a second vote had to be taken. It's unclear on what grounds Menocles objected, but one view is that he was impugning the legality of Eurypolemus's proposal. Under the law, it seems that such an objection should have suspended the consideration of the matter before the ecclesia, but Xenophon's narrative does not convey that impression, as they instead voted for the two proposals once again. So it has also been suggested that Menocles complained that the presiding committee had falsely reported the vote, and therefore a second vote was necessary. Whatever the case, after the second vote, the original motion was carried. All eight generals, including those who fled, were found guilty and sentenced to death. From the Penix Hill, the officials known as the Eleven took the condemned men in chains back down to the prison in the southwest corner of the Agora. The Eleven, or Hoi Hendeke, were a board of eleven magistrates, hence the name, who were in charge of condemned prisoners and enforcing legal decisions by the courts or the ecclesia. In this instance, they would be the ones to carry out death sentences. The Athenians customarily conducted executions at once, though families and friends were given the opportunity to make one last visit to the condemned. The method of death varied according to the nature of the crime and the status of the condemned. For example, pirates were crucified on wooden boards set up along the road to the Piraeus, and enemies of the state and polluted persons were thrown into a pit, called the Barathon, to die of starvation. But respectable citizens, such as these six generals, were allowed to drink the poisonous hemlock. 
It was extracted from a branchy weed that grew wild throughout Attica. When gathered, brought to an apothecary, and pressed in a mortar, its leaves and fruits yielded a bitter juice. A cupful was enough to kill a man. After consumption, drowsiness led slowly to paralysis of the limbs, followed by the loss of speech. Once the poison reached the lungs, the victim lost the ability to breathe and then died from asphyxiation. One after another, six of the eight generals of Arganusai drank their vials of hemlock and faded from existence. And in the cramped rooms of the prison, Thrasyllus had seen his ominous dream fulfilled. As you'd expect, the Athenians soon cooled off and came to regret their decision. And instead of blaming themselves collectively, charges were brought against the principal instigators of the executions. A total of five men, including Kalexanos, However, these five men managed to escape Athens before they could be brought to trial. In particular, Calixenos made his way to the Spartans at Decalia. He eventually returned to Athens several years later, after the war had concluded, but he was despised by his fellow citizens, and he died of starvation. There will be more on that in the future. Still, no recriminations could bring the generals back to life. And practically speaking, the Athenians had made a foolish decision to execute six and force into exile two others of their most experienced and successful military leaders. In addition, even though he wasn't charged, because of his connection to the events at Arganusai, Thrasybulus wasn't elected to be general for 405 BC. Theramenes was chosen, but according to Lysias in his speech titled Against Agoratus, he was quickly disqualified by the board that regularly examined newly named officials, a process known as Dokamazia. The result was that Athens now had to face the challenge of Lysander and Persia without their most experienced commanders, and those who were selected in their place must have been unnerved that the same fate could await them. The trust was now ruptured between the people and their elected military leaders. Democracy unchecked by reason proved as violent and unjust as tyranny. This would be a permanent black mark that enemies of democracy throughout history would use against the Athenians. For all of their misfortunes after the battle, the Athenians still won a great victory at Arganusai. On the other hand, the Spartans' defeat added to a long list of setbacks since the war in the Aegean had begun. Although their fleet had not been entirely destroyed this time, as they still had 90 triremes, it now languished in poor condition at Chios. Without Persian financial support, the Spartan vice-admiral Etianicus had no money to feed his crews, let alone challenge the Athenians at sea. Xenophon relays how soldiers and sailors only escape starvation by hiring themselves out as farm laborers on Chios. But when the harvest ended and winter came, they once again had no food and were poorly dressed and barefoot. As poverty began to make some very desperate to survive, some of them began to plan a raid on the city of Chios itself. They came to an agreement that those among them who would partake in their plan would carry a reed so that the others might know how many of them there were. When Etianicus learned of the plan, he was uncertain of what to do because of the large number of riotous men, as he thought it might be dangerous to try to stop them openly, fearing that they might react hastily, take up arms, and capture the city. This obviously would have been a terrible outcome, because you just can't have Spartan troops attacking their own allies which would diminish Sparta's reputation among the other Greeks. So in a sort of special ops mission, he took 15 men with him, each armed with daggers, and went throughout the city looking for those who were holding reeds. At one point, they chanced upon a man with an eye disease, 
just coming out from a visit to his doctor, and he was holding a reed. It's not stated whether it was innocuous or he was involved, but Atianicus noticed this and killed him. A commotion arose among the onlookers, and when the people pressed him as to why he killed the man, Atianicus replied that it was because he was carrying the reed, but did not give any further information to its importance. When this response became known, every man who had been holding a reed quickly got rid of theirs, fearing the consequences of being seen holding one. Afterwards, Atianicus called together the Keans and ordered them to contribute money so that he could pay the soldiers and prevent any more conspiracies from forming. For the moment, the frightened Keans agreed to support the Spartans. Then, Atianicus commanded his men to board all of their ships. Going in turn to each ship, he fervently encouraged and exhorted his men, acting as if he knew nothing of the conspiracy, and then gave each of them a month's pay. Still, this was a temporary fix to prevent the men from starving or from doing something that Sparta would regret, and a more permanent solution would need to be found or it would happen again. Clearly, the Spartan soldiers were struggling to survive, let alone fight a war. And so without Persian money, Atianicus knew that Sparta could not continue the war in the Aegean. At home, the Spartans were also discouraged by their defeat at the hands of such an inexperienced Athenian fleet. And the traditionalist faction that had supported Callicratidas were displeased by the notion that their rival Lysander would once again rise to power if the war continued. So a delegation was dispatched to Athens to once again try to negotiate a peace on the status quo in the Aegean in return for their evacuation of Decalia. For the Athenians, this was a better offer than the one they had rejected after Sisychus. Because even though the Athenians no longer had possession of Pylos as leverage, the Spartans were still willing to abandon Decalia. In addition, although the peace overture did not offer all of their possessions back to the Athenians, Sparta's only holdings now were Abydos in the Hellespont, the island of Chios off the Ionian coast, and Chime, Phocaea, and Ephesus on the Ionian mainland. Furthermore, if Sparta chose to continue fighting with renewed Persian assistance, it could quickly restore numerical superiority to its fleet and win over rowers with higher pay. On the other hand, whereas the resumption of war would soon exhaust Athenian resources, peace would allow them to collect tribute and refill their treasury from the vast empire that they still controlled. And Sparta's withdrawal from Decalia would allow Athenian farmers to return to their fields and begin to produce crops again. Still, the peace offer was refused. Aristotle blames their foolishness here on the demagogue Cleophon, saying that he entered the ecclesia drunk and dressed in his military breastplate, shouting that he would not permit a peace agreement unless the Spartans returned all of the cities that had at one point been held by the Athenians. This likely was a partisan version of events. But whatever the case, the fact still remains that a majority of the Athenians rejected the peace offer. The most likely explanation is that the Athenians, no matter their strength or weakness, were not willing to accept any peace by the Spartans, as they didn't trust them after their breach of faith following the peace of Nicias. They believed that the Spartans would use any peace as a mere truce to regroup, recover, and negotiate with the Persians in order to renew the war in a better position. So they likely judged that it was better to press forward for a total victory while the Spartans were weakened and discouraged and their relations with Persia strained. If this was the case, the trouble with Athens's plan was that, although Persia and Sparta were currently estranged, Cyrus remained satrap, and he had a very good relationship with Lysander. If Lysander happened to somehow find himself commanding Spartan forces in the east once again, 
it was a foregone conclusion that the Spartan-Persian alliance would be back on. So as it stood at the end of 406 BC, the, the Athenians tactically may have been in the better position, but for all intents and purposes, the Spartans held the better hand. On the next episode, we see all those ifs come to fruition, and the consequences of the Athenians' actions after the Battle of Arganusa would be grave. So join me next time on the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 107, Sparta Triumphant. Mm-hmm.